Hey, it's Josiah. Before we get started with this episode, I have something very special to share with you. You know, we've delved deep into what it means to be an Enneagram 5 together for the past few years, especially with our friend of the show, Sam Greenberg, or as many of you know her, the Enneagram expert. And now we want to go even deeper with you. We've worked together with Sam to craft an online workshop exclusively for type 5s to help you unlock the secrets of connection with every Enneagram type. This is not just another generic workshop. It's a deep dive into understanding and nurturing relationships tailored specifically for your unique perspective. Imagine getting practical, actionable insights on connecting with each of the nine Enneagram types all through the lens of a type five. Sam's going to guide you on how to build meaningful relationships, sharing strategies and insights specifically designed for fives. I've seen firsthand how Sam's insights can transform understanding and communication. And I'm so excited to partner with her to bring this exclusive workshop to you. Whether you're looking to deepen current relationships or navigate new ones, this workshop is a game changer for fives seeking genuine connection. Spots are limited, and trust me, you don't want to miss this. So head over to Enneagram5.com connection to secure your place and begin your journey towards richer, more authentic connections. Once again, go to Enneagram5.com connection or visit the link in the description to get your ticket to the workshop today. So, Cody. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about Donald Trump? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> hang on, I'll think of something. <laughs> My favorite thing. Uh, his expert ability to hide things. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about Joe Biden? His, his just prowess walking up stairs. So when we were thinking about this season, I looked back at our previous conversations and I decided, you know, we didn't isolate enough of our audience with the religion episode, so we should talk about politics. (laughs) Yeah, well, also too, I feel like there was a lot of things that we were just kind of, you know, season one, we're like trying to figure out what the hell we're doing. And then season two, we're like, Oh, we're getting our stride. And season three, it's like, Oh, we're having fun with this. And then it's like, they've got to the season three. It's like, what do we talk about now? And so we, I started, we just went back and looked at all the things we didn't talk about the first, <laughs> the first three seasons, which is a lot of topics. And, uh, so we're, uh, you can look at it as cream of the crop or bottom of the barrel for season four um, of the things that we've been the most afraid of to talk about or <laughs> the things that we weren't really sure if we were ready to talk about. So season four will be interesting in that way. But yeah, we're starting, <laughs> starting or, off with the hot topic. Or, or maybe things that aren't as obviously Enneagram five type topics. I think that's part of it too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like how do we talk about politics for Enneagram fives as Enneagram fives? Like how, how does that fit into our... 
our, our mold. Yeah. I will say, I think that I am simultaneously excited to talk about this because I feel like as fives, it's the most okay group to talk about taboo things with, you know, traditionally taboo things. Sure. Yeah. Um, they're, they're at least, uh, we're generally a more open to what people have to say before we speak our judgment type of people, I think, <laughs> you know, like we're, we're, we're going to take in the information. <laughs> right. So they're at least giving us a chance right now. <laughs> well, I also, it just seems like based off of, you know, us and yeah. the community that, on average, I think fives are into uh, more weird stuff and kind of more uh, non-typical interests and topics and are more okay with talking about things that other people might not be okay with talking about kind of in polite society or whatever. That's, yeah, that's definitely true. I think that's definitely true. And and being, and we, yeah, definitely willing to have those con- those hard conversations. I mean, that's, that's the best one-on-one conversations. You know, I love yeah. one-on-one conversations, but the best ones are the ones that are going to make you think or maybe make you a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, so with that, I've also kind of been dreading this conversation because I fucking hate politics. <laughs> yeah. And... And I, you know, honestly, you and I have not really talked about politics in a while. No. And I've shifted a lot. I don't know if you've shifted. And so there's just, there's a lot of, I don't know, I guess, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but just uncertainty in how this conversation is going to go between the two of us, but also how this conversation is going to be received in the broader community. And yeah, you know. Well, you know, we've we there's a lot that we've talked about over the last couple of years, and every time I start the conversation, going, I don't know how this is going to go, and I don't know how people are going to receive it, <laughs> and I feel like so far it's been all right <laughs> <laughs> that we know of, that we know of. I mean, we've had people have said positive things, been really nice so far. So, um, yeah, this might be the one that just. Yeah. You if know. you hate it, go ahead and tell us. I mean, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. I don't care. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> there are I, other podcasts. No, just yeah, kidding. Just I, kidding. We want to keep you. <laughs> maybe maybe we can set this up as, I want to level set like right out the gate that my hope for mankind and the way that I view humanity is I want every individual to flourish in their own uniqueness, in the way that, like I want every person to be the best version of themselves and yeah. and have the freedom to figure that out. Yeah. And so I guess my trepidation around all of this is and we'll get into this in a bit is I feel like a lot of times I am too conservative for my liberal friends and too liberal for my conservative friends and probably too anarchist for my libertarian friends and so I don't really feel like <laughs> I live anywhere in that regard. Yeah. And I don't know. I I don't talk about politics much and a lot of this conversation will probably be me sort of saying things out loud for the first time that have been rattling around in my head and doing so pretty, um, that should be interesting uh, and eloquently. Yeah. <laughs> well, just keep saying versions of it over and over again and I'll edit the best <laughs> there one <we> together. Go. <laughs> I'm going to come off as like the most eloquent person 
ever. Um, and then Cody's going to release all of the 10 versions of me saying really stupid shit. Yeah. In the community. <laughs> I'll say that one. I'll use it. I'll save it for that. Um, no, you guys get the best version that we can come up with that I can come up with after the fact. So for whatever that's worth. No, I think that that's, I think that's, I get that though, you know, and, and, and statistically most people are kind of in the middle and don't fit into a box. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's, and that's kind of where we are right now, right? Like none of us fit into the mold of the system that we're all operating in to like exist in this country that's also an experiment. So yeah. <laughs> that's never been proven a good, so, to be a good experiment. I think that I will probably rant and I will probably say weird things and then I'll cut it out and then Cody will cut it out or <laughs> leave it in or leave it in. Depends on what it depends on what you say. Yeah. But but I just, I hope everyone takes it as I'm, I really just genuinely want each of us to be able to figure out for ourselves, you know, how to be the best version of ourselves. Well, and also too, like we're trying to create a space in which it is safe to express yourself as who you are, as, as, as you know, the, from the very first episode to now, we created this podcast because there wasn't a space for Enneagram fives. There wasn't a space for resources. Mm. There wasn't a space for us to be ourselves together, to better understand ourselves and each other and, and learn different perspectives. And so hopefully that's what this conversation continues to do is create a space and for us to create a space for all of you to be safe and, and feel comfortable. We have to do that for ourselves as well. So that's what we're doing. So you and I live have a safe space here right now. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did I just give you permission? Yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I don't need your fucking permission. Okay. So maybe we start with our political journeys, Cody. And what, what was politics like growing up for you? Like, was it part of your life? If, if so, how so? And how, how has that changed over time? Mm, yeah. Politics was kind of a convoluted thing. It was, it was very much tied to religion. It was very much tied to kind of just overall the, the you know everything is kind of this belief structure that kind of is just a, a, a casting a shadow over everything that I do yeah I it's it's funny you know the earliest time that I remember thinking anything about politics at all and, and for anybody that's probably our age is 9-11 hmm. I think that's the first time that politics entered my life in a conscious way where I started <laughs> thinking about uh, a president that actually says things or doesn't and does things or doesn't do things. Right. And, uh, you know, so George Bush was kind of like the first time that I thought about politics in any conscious way where I started wondering, like, how does the government work and what do they do for us or don't do? And were there weapons of mass destruction, you know, <laughs> like, no, and there weren't. <laughs> um, and so, you know, all of that uh, was, and honestly, it's probably why the movie vice was so interesting and fun for me to watch because it was taking me back to the time that was in the first introduction of politics into my hmm. life. And this idea of, uh, you know, what they do or don't say and all of these things. So the movie vice, if you have not watched it is incredible. I have not seen that. It's, it's amazing. You know, that was really the first time that I ever thought about politics. And so, uh, and, and that was all within this grand scheme of things of like George Bush was the chosen one that God wanted to be in, in <laughs> office. Right. It was, I, and that was kind of how politics was always painted to me because yeah. I was in, I went from like charismatic circles to fundamentalist circles and went through all these, these phases in my earlier, cause I was, I was in Calvary chapel, if you're familiar and they're kind of like Baptist light with some cool clothes on. And so like, <laughs> uh, 
and they play like guitars. And so they, they, there was very much a who you vote for is tied to what you believe and yeah. what you want God to do in the White House, right? And so all of that was kind of tied together. And that was what was painted. That was the picture that was painted for me growing up through my teen years into my adult years. And I... From the moment that I was able to vote, I voted strictly Republican because the Republican Party was the party that only cared about what God cared about. Of right? course, yeah. And so, and that's just that's just what I was told. That was you. That's what you did if you were a good and proper Christian, is you voted Republican and you voted only for all the things that were, you know, against all of the people that were sinning and doing all the things that God didn't want them to do. And so, um, I remember, I think it was. I the last time that I voted Republican was uh, during the it was after Obama won for the first time I think so I remember thinking oh God what 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 has happened to our world and country that Barack Obama won so who did you vote for uh, well who was it then it was a uh, it was the Mormon what was his <laughs> name Mitt Romney Mitt Romney yeah. yeah so Mitt Romney was the last time that I voted. Um, voted Republican. And then, yeah, from that point on, I, that it was around that time that I think there's a lot of shifts that happened in my life. So that would have been 2008. Eight. Yeah. yeah. And so I started thinking a lot about, uh, you know, that was when I was, I was going through kind of a shift in my life, getting to know a lot of people that were not like me and starting to expand my worldview a little bit and introducing a lot of further, education into my life in some ways that just like starting to learn a lot more about the world and other people's experiences and what was happening in other countries. And I think that, and what that did was, is uh, it created in me a more globally centric view of existence and in life and not just like what it is that I believe and how everybody should adhere to what I believe or what I've been told to believe is really what it was. And so I think that that, that started to really shift things. Right. And so and also, like, Obama was in office for four years, and he wasn't the Antichrist, it turned out. So, you know, it was like it turned out to be, like, not what everybody said it was going to be. It wasn't as bad. And also, he uh, passed a lot of things that helped me a lot in that point in my life. Obamacare was a massive mm. help for me. Um, I didn't have good health care before that. And um, and even after that, you know, the first few years, I didn't pay for health care for, like, six or eight years. And so, and I could go to the doctor and I have to worry about how it was going to like destroy my life. And so, you know, there was things like that, that, and then I started thinking about all the other people that make even less money than I did and how those things were helping them. And so, and then the more that I grew up and, and got into my adult life, the more I realized how absolutely ridiculous everything that I ever thought and believed before was and for myself. And it was just, it was so hard for me to even fathom shoving my beliefs down other people's throats through law. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that was that was where I spent a lot of my adult life, I think. And then I got into my 30s and and deconstructed fully out of faith completely and have pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I've fairly I, I would exist. I've, I have existed consciously in the realm of atheism. But somewhere somewhere in my 30s, I I just stopped caring about anything anybody said in politics <laughs> i don't know it was weird it was just like because uh, i was like how often do we actually see those things happen right mm -hmm. or how often does anything matter and like and also i i think my worldview kept growing right i kept becoming more empathetic with the people that are marginalized and people that are my friends that are are minorities across the board across the spectrum and how 
no matter who is in office, they struggle. And no matter who, no matter what happens, it's, it's like laws are always being written against them and, and, and policies are always being put in place against them. And so I, I started getting this, this kind of passive aggressive nature towards politics in general. And so then, and then, you know, then I had a few friends that are a hundred percent anarchist and they started like <laughs> saying things like, <laughs> why does it even matter? And should we burn it to the ground? And I was like, that sounds pretty nice. And they're like, yeah, that does, doesn't it? But honestly, (laughs) 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 and so, um, and then, and you know, fast forward to now. And I mean, I had a, I had a conversation with my parents on the phone yesterday. I'm sure they're going to love hearing this. Um, I don't even know if they listen to this podcast anymore, but we'll find out, I guess. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I had a conversation with my parents on the phone yesterday that lasts like 45 minutes because, you know, my dad, he was like, I hate people calling me a Republican. I'm like, yeah, but you've, I mean, you are though, like based on everything you say. And cause he, cause I was like, you know, you voted Republican and he was like, yeah, but like, I don't, you know, I hate Donald Trump and I don't like what pub- Republicans stand for anymore. Also, he's come a long way in terms of like where he is. And it's like, you know, and my mom is especially is interesting because she's voted all over the board my entire life. And so I think that, you know, we've had the, these interesting conversations recently and I don't know, I had to cut them off because I had to go to work, but it was one of those things where, um, I was just like, yeah, I mean, I can talk politics, but at the end of the day, like, I don't know how much I can offer to the conversation because what I don't have solutions for how to fix everything. I just know that nothing we're doing is working like this experiment, this grand experiment of America and democratic, the Republic, the democratic Republic of America is a failed experiment. Like we are failing in every area. So how do we have this conversation of solutions when all I want, like all I want to do, if I, if, if my vote has to count towards anything, I just want it to count towards helping people and feeding people and housing people and making sure that if the government's going to do anything, it should be helping us, not hurting us. And that's all I care about. Like at the bottom, bottom line of anything is, are they helping or hurting us? Hurting us? Cool. Fuck them all. <laughs> like, you know, so, and that's kind of where I am. And I, I mean, I know that like a lot of things that we've been so polarized and so like politically charged in the last few years, we've had heated conversations in the past. And I've, I've even come out of that, I think, and grown out of that where it's like, I don't even want to have those conversations anymore because none of it fucking matters. Like, it's just, it's so, it's hard to have an educated conversation around politics, I think, is the really hard part of it. And as an Enneagram 5, that is the most, and I, I don't want to be pulled down by like the tribalism, the, the tribalism yeah. and, yeah. The, and the, the, the murmuring, like the, the whole idea of just like mudslinging because we're going to yeah. be, you know, on one side or the other. And like, why did we decide to have one side or the other? Like, it's just when you take all that away. And that's what I was explaining to my parents yesterday. Like you take all of that away, all the polarization, everything before all the heated language and, and stuff that was like triggering our amygdala only and only emotionally reacting. Right. Like we're all in the middle. Like we all kind of have most things in common. And I think that especially like our generation and below can pretty much generally agree that people matter and that we should be considering people first. And that's what the government was here to begin with. And they should have been here creating resources for us from the beginning. And so like, that's, you know, my, I think my dad had always, and many people in my dad's generation have called me like a, you know, bleeding liberal and all of that stuff. But like, I don't consider myself a liberal. I just consider myself people centered and, and uh, a humanist, right? Like I just, mm-hmm. I, we're, we're all human. Like, why can't we all treat each other? Like we're all human. And so that's, that's my journey basically. <laughs> so here we are. 
No, I love that. I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I feel like it's needed between the two of us. Yeah. You know? So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. There are a lot of similarities with my journey, except I didn't care about politics at all until my 30s, really. Yeah. So I grew up, technically, I, I grew up conservative, but my parents never talked about politics. I never knew who my parents voted for. I didn't even know if they voted. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know if they voted. I have no idea. Um, yeah. we, we never talked about it in our house. We didn't really talk about a lot of things in our house. But, <laughs> um, I always just kind of viewed it as something separate from me that didn't really have much of an impact. Mm. And um, I kept that view through most of, yeah, so pretty much all of my 20s. And, um, and then, you know, around the time when I turned 30 is when I became a dad. And uh, I do remember, so technically I was probably... I, I probably was a Republican just because my family, like we tribally. Yeah. yeah I was sure. like, yeah. you know, grew up around conservatives. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't really care enough. And I think that the thing that always turned me off was I never got into politics because anytime I would try to look into it, it always just felt like there was, it was impossible to know what was true hmm. when everyone is lying. It's impossible to figure it out. And, and, and I want to be able to like rationalize, like reason about things. And yeah. I want to be able to make sense of things. And you can't do that if, if, if there's no truth mm-hmm. or if the truth is so obscured that you have to, you have to like sift through all the double speak and yeah. all the manipulation to like even sort of get to it. So I just pretty much ignored politics my whole life. Um, I felt like it, it, it didn't really matter. It didn't affect me. And then when we were living in Nashville, I would say I started to really lean left. This was around the time when I was deconstructing and we were both kind of leaving faith together on our own separate journeys. Yeah. And the, the funny thing, actually, I think I mentioned this in our religion conversation, but the, the thing that changed my direction was we moved from Tennessee to Washington state. And I think my conservative like family thought that I went out to Washington and became a liberal, uh, yeah. but that actually wasn't the case. Well, yeah, because you're kind of in a religious bubble. Well, I was, but that was the interesting thing. And so I was working for a Bible software company, <laughs> but it was actually really great in that regard because my my bubble was so small that it opened me up to all kinds of new ideas, like in the mm. theological space. And I realized, hey, you know, I always I grew up thinking Catholicism was a, a cult because that's what I was taught. And right. so then I started hanging out with Catholics. I'm like, hey, these guys are pretty cool, you know, and like just stuff like that. And to be fair, a lot of cults are pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Especially uh, on the front end. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I mean, but I, I viewed it as like I wasn't in a cult, but they were. Sure. Right? So, yeah. 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 Um, and so I, yeah, but I got to know more people on a personal level that were outside of my you know, direct belief. It was an adjacent belief system, but mm. it was, you yeah, know, it was a different enough that it started to get me more questioning things. And then when I moved back to Nashville is actually when I started to become a lot more left-leaning. And I don't know if it was the company I was working at at the time or just me rejecting my whole upbringing up to that point. And so that included conservatism and uh, whatever you want to call it. But I never actually voted until the 2016 election. And I voted for Gary Johnson. And it was because I lived in a deep red state. 
So it didn't really matter who I voted for. Correct. Yeah. Um, and that was always a big, a big part of my, my disdain for the system was like, if I don't live in a swing state, like what's really the point? And so I voted for Gary Johnson more as like a referendum on the system as a whole of like, Hey, we need more options. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then I was shocked when Donald Trump won. I remember sitting and we were our sitting together. Yeah. I yeah. was sitting in your floor. And Amy, Amy looked at me and was like, he's not going to win. Right. And I was like, no, there's no way. And, and then we all just kind of watched in shock, watched in shock as all of the (laughs) polls were wrong. (laughs) That was the first time. There's like a massive breakdown of the quote unquote system. You know, it was, yeah, it wasn't. But even at that point, I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't really care. Um, and I just sort of opted out. But the funny thing was, and, and at this point, like I never really paid attention to the news. Most of the time I was in survival mode. Yeah. Um, so I never paid attention to the news, definitely never paid attention to politics. And the funny thing is I got started following like the news and like the Apple news app because the whole stormy Daniels thing with Trump. Yeah. It kept being like, Oh, we're going to catch him and we're going to get him this time. So I'm like, okay, well I'll just check and see if there are any updates on this. And then that got me sucked into more and more and more. And I was following, I'm just waiting for them to take Trump down. Yeah. And, and I kind of got sucked in. And it's just very like, one of the things that I've learned through all this is how much that shit affects you at the unconscious level. And even if you don't watch Fox News or watch CNN or MSNBC, just the fact that it's so many people do, it permeates into the culture and Mm -hmm. you pick up on things unconsciously and you form opinions on things unconsciously that you don't even realize a lot of the times. And I started developing like this just hate for Donald Trump and the Republican party and, and all of this stuff. Um, and this would have been around like 2017, 2018, but at the same time I was trying to run my own business and Mm -hmm. in survival mode. And so I didn't really give it a lot of thought until we all locked down in 2020 (laughs) and that just like, it was a complete pattern interrupt. And the, (laughs) the funny thing is I actually started getting into politics because of UFOs and the, you know, when the, the Pentagon confirmed the authenticity of those three videos that were le- released with the New York Times article in 2017, yeah. you know, they, they did that in 2020 and that's what got me interested in that. And as I started looking into that, I found some people who were talking about it. One of the people was uh, Sagar and Jetty, who at the time was on this kind of startup show called Rising on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I started following, like watching their show kind of daily, just like updates on things. But it was really interesting to me. The thing that I appreciated about the show was he was right-leaning and then his co-host Crystal Ball was left-leaning. And so, you know, a lot of times they, they, they claim to be populists. Um, I, now I would, uh, I would question that, but they, <laughs> they claim to be populist and they, um, they were saying, you know, bring up a lot of points I hadn't really heard before. And they would bring on these panels and it would be like, kind of like a, here's a right leaning perspective. Here's kind of a left leaning perspective. And I, and I never really watched anything or, or read anything that, that had a lot of that. So it was really interesting to me and I appreciated it. And one of the things that I, I appreciate about the show was 
you know, Crystal came from MSNBC as a, I think she was an anchor on there and Sagar was a white house correspondent. Um, I don't remember what publication, but you know, a, a conservative publication. Yeah. Um, so they both, um, and I think Crystal actually ran for office at one point. And so they both had a, uh, you know, firsthand understanding of how the media works and how kind of politics work behind the scenes. Yeah. And so I was watching them and they were, you know, I would, I would read something in a headline in like New York times or Washington post or something. And then I would listen to them talk about it and realize I'm missing so much context here. And I have no mm. idea how the political system actually works. And so I started to learn about things like why McConnell's strategy for, you know, stacking the Supreme court and, and all these mm. things, like yeah. why that matters. And uh, really it's because Congress doesn't want to actually do their job. Yeah. They, they don't want to vote because if they vote, they go on record and then you have something to complain about as a voter. Yeah. And so they do everything they can to avoid voting on things unless, unless they know that what they're voting on is never going to pass. And so they'll vote on it. Yeah. Uh, like, See, look what we did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and it's just, and, yep. and it's just bullshit. Yeah. And, and, but I started to learn how to look into who's funding them. You know, what, what have they voted on? What have they said versus what have they done? Yep. And, it started to open up my eyes to how the system works. And the more that I did that, the more I started to understand, which engaged me in politics because I wanted to figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. And, and so they ended up leaving the Hill and they started their own thing called breaking points. And um, I followed them for a while. And now I, I, it was, well, the funny thing too was when I first started watching them, I was very much in alignment with crystal. Mm -hmm. It was very left leaning. Right. And I remember thinking, you know, Sager seems like a smart guy. Like, why would he be a conservative? Mm. And, and then he would say certain things. I'm like, actually, that makes sense. Uh, and I hadn't thought about it that before. And that I'd never even, like, I didn't even know that was a thing. And just, just stuff like that over time to where I started to align with him on a lot more stuff. At this point, I kind of view them as, I, I only watch their stuff when I want to kind of see where the over, like the edge of the Overton window is. Mm. And like what's acceptable in terms of a, a stance on something because uh -huh. I, I disagree with a, a lot of stuff with them now. Sure. But I, I appreciate them because they helped me learn about the system, yeah, how it works. And then I was able to take those tools and start to form my own opinions on things and actually be able to, you know, to build a still man argument versus something and, and pick out when the media is building a straw man argument and when they're doing double speak and when they, you know, when they are biased and, and starting to understand how to identify different people's biases and how that would affect where they're coming from. Yeah. And a lot of the, the, the stuff that I've been doing over the last two years, especially is going back and like people that I, I still actually can't really stand on a personal level like, well, I'll watch them to see what they have to say. Right. And to, you know, to see where they're coming from. And I, and I really do try my best to look at both or multiple sides of an issue and, and try to evaluate the evidence and, 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 and form my own opinion on things. And it's taken me a long time to build up those skills because especially cause I was so, you know, apathetic and outside of the system um, and, and wasn't paying attention before. But I've gotten to the point where I, I'm at, le I at least have like a, a rudimentary enough level skill where I can't. I do feel like I can form my own opinions on things. I have I've wa I've watched enough to find people I trust on certain topics, mm. um, based on their 
experience, like firsthand experience with the topics. And so I follow a lot of, I have a highly curated uh, <laughs> Twitter feed of yeah. independent journalists that I follow for different specific things. Uh, that That's a lot of where I, I get stuff from now because it's really easy to figure out like what the mainstream news stance is on, on any given issue. Sure. Yeah. And what I've found, and this is something people might disagree with the first thing I say that people actually probably not the first thing I say that people disagree with, but like one of the main things is uh, I, I feel like there's, there's the narrative. There's sort of the main narrative. Yeah. And then there's the counter narrative mm-hmm. and around that is the bubble of what is okay to talk about mm. and okay. Nar- like the okay narrative, because looking at the way that everything is set up, I feel like, each side is set up as controlled opposition to the other side. Yeah. And anytime they like something happens, the uh, one side will take it and there'll probably be a big kernel of truth there, but then they'll add something outrageous on top of it to make the other side not even want to pay attention to it or, or like just come out in opposition to it no matter what. Yeah. And in that, so in that, like the truth is being obscured, I feel like. And Sure. That's a big part of what I've learned just in trying to evaluate both sides and realizing, hey, this is all a smokescreen. And that has kind of led me to where I'm currently at, which I probably need another drink before I can start unpacking all that. <laughs> yeah, all right, let's take a commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> that I have my political beliefs, like my basic fundamental beliefs that drive my political leanings, but I don't like talking about them unless I know that it's in more of a controlled environment, that somebody is intentionally wanting to speak freely and being open about my opinions versus theirs. And I find that there are very few people who really want to do that. And I find myself more on a defensive side of the aisle. Um, Politics gets really sticky. And I have friends who are very much on one side, family members who are very much on another side. And I just don't like the tension that arises from it. So if there's something more helpful, like an article or some event happens that gets people talking about their viewpoints on something that could be very sticky and political, then I would rather talk about it then. But I don't usually interject my opinion into random conversations with friends because it's just politics are so messy with people these days. You know, I think that I see what you're saying, and and, and and I agree with you. You know that there's this there's the whole narrative the whole narrative issue, and I think that that's why I find myself looking for news that is more like old school news. Mm-hmm. Is like there's there's a, there's a few people left. NPR does a really good job of doing this podcast called Up Next, and literally it's just like a 15 ish minute podcast with where they they say the headline of something that's happening around mm-hmm. the world or in the US 
They give you a little bit of backstory. They might have somebody who's involved in the story that actually it affects. But most of the time, that's not even the case. It's like reading out the story, reading mm-hmm. out the things that have happened, and then they move on. No commentary at all. Yeah. And so I'm always looking for like commentary lists. Okay. News, right? And as about much as possible. NPR, the uh, state-sponsored media organization. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I mean, if, but that's not the only place I'm listening either. Obviously, I'm just um, giving you shit. <laughs> <laughs> but you can. You, I feel like if you're really listening for it and you're really paying attention, it's pretty easy to acknowledge certain types of media. Whether I mean, every media, all media, all news is biased, but. If they're just reading mm-hmm. out the headlines and not being able to get, interject their opinion in there, you can, it's pretty obvious when they're not in, interjecting their opinion. You can say like, you know, this oil rig blew up in the in the Gulf mm-hmm. on this day, yeah, and these cleanup efforts are happening anyway. <laughs> whether you know, then you're not like interjecting like yeah. the dangers of oil or whatever the case may be, you know. And so I think that there's there's a certain level of centerness that happens when you like there's a lot of the media that i find when i filter it and i look for left and then right and then i look for center more often than not center is just narration it's not it's not um or co- it's there's no commentary there's no like interjecting opinions to color the story to make it clickbait or to make mm-hmm. it whatever the case may be right um, and then there's the other side of news that I enjoy listening to, which is story driven news, which is, uh, you know, New York times does a good job of this with their podcast. Um, NPR sometimes does this, but vice does a really good job of this. Um, I'm sad to hear that vice news is actually, <laughs> they're going bankrupt, but so hopefully I don't know if vice news will stick around, but they do a really good job of digging into like sending out journalists and actually gathering people's stories and basing their, their journalism and and what they're writing and what they're telling based on actual people's first account stories. And the New York times does that too, for a pretty good, and they do a really good job of that. And so, and that helps people expand their worldview. I've sent, you know, podcast episodes to my parents and it's, you know, changed and then other people that I know, and it's changed the way that they think about the middle East or, you know, things like that. And I feel like that that's, that's something that's very impactful that it, especially, and they've, you know, coming wrapping back around to what podcast we're on right now. Um, (laughs) Enneagram fives. I feel like I need that help constantly to like recheck myself that I am a white upper middle class. I, I get to decide if I want to be involved in politics or not. Right. Like I wanted to make that. I was thinking about that when you were talking about like, you weren't even interested in politics until your thirties, but some people, politics affect their life from their childhood and we don't they don't get a choice on that matter right and so i i think about that a lot too in the fact that like we we get to we have the privilege of deciding whether or not we want to be interested in politics or not and and then as fives there's like that extra layer of like well we don't want to we either don't want to put up with the bullshit or we do or you know what bullshit do we want to filter and decide on i don't know it's it's so hard to to break down through those layers when you're when you're still getting fed all of this bullshit spoon fed by different people and different sides at all from all different perspectives. And I think that that's, that's something that's really difficult. So I do love storytelling. I like storytelling from both sides. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm vastly interested in far right belief systems because Hmm. one historically in the world, (laughs) they've, they've done a lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> throughout throughout history and authoritarianism and so like i'm always interested in that in and of itself but like also like something that's just vastly different from how i th- i view the world is is interesting to me from a 
an objective standpoint. And so I think that that's, it's something to hear stories of, of where people come from. And I can feel for a lot of, you know, rural Americans who feel, uh, you know, impacted in different ways as well from, from the government because their experiences are also valid and true. And I, I can feel for them. So it's, it's just really hard to stories is really what politics is. And we don't think about it that way. I, we think about it as all these belief systems and tribalism and like, you know, fit, you know, shaking our fists at each other. But like, how often is it just, you know, our stories? Yeah. (laughs) So there's a couple of things there that I want to push back on, if I may. Mm -hmm. The first one is this idea of like privilege of whether or not to engage in politics. Yeah. I've heard that before. And Mm -hmm. there was a point when I was on board with that. Um, I don't think the data actually supports that. Okay. Because when you dig into like the, the, the narrative is, you know, minority groups, they like, we are so privileged that we, it's easy for us to vote. But if we choose not to, basically we, we have, we have a privilege to choose not to, whereas the minorities don't have a choice because it affects them more. But if you dig into the polling around why minorities don't vote, the vast majority of them don't vote because they feel like it doesn't matter if they vote. Because it because either way the system's going to screw them, right? Right, and so if by not voting, I'm actually standing in solidarity with them, because it doesn't matter. Okay, well, be, first, first yeah. of all, let me let me let me let me reiterate that voting is not what I'm talking about. Okay, voting, I agree with you on that. Yeah, and I don't think I mean we live in Tennessee, and as someone who leans left, like my vote doesn't matter at all, and we can we we get in that or not if we want to, but <laughs> that's a systemic issue. Um, and so I, you know, my vote but it doesn't matter either. So I completely agree with that. I, I what I mean is like the politics of actual policies and laws. Most like laws that are being passed right now, generally, and, and policies that are being passed right now don't affect me personally at all because I'm a white, straight, cis male. Like I just don't, they're not affecting me directly, but they do affect a lot of my friends who are LGBTQ or people of color. Like they do affect them in their life and they can affect them directly and in the future may affect them even more. And that's what I mean. Like they don't have a, they don't have a choice in that matter in regards of like whether they care or not about politics. Yeah. That's so just the political conversation. So, so this is where I, I think that we, we want to dig into and unpack what the cultural political fights mm. versus what politics is doing under the hood. Yeah. And because if, if you're just looking at the, the cultural political fights, I think that there's probably a case to be made for that. Right. Because they're centered around these marginalized groups. Right. That is intentional. Mm-hmm. And it's an intentional because it gets everyone to get into an emotional state and, and war, like, gets us to fight against each other as a smokescreen for what's, what really the majority of politics is about. And so let's, first, I want to, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and this, is, this is the point where I get to, like, I, there's a lot of stuff that I have in my head that I haven't really tried to say out loud. So I probably will stumble through a lot of this, but one, one piece is, are you familiar with the, the rats in the cage experiment? Possibly explain it. I can't explain it either way. It's a podcast. (laughs) Sure. Uh, so sure. Yes, I am. Yes. For for the listeners, for the listeners. Um, I was just giving you a chance to see how familiar you were with the, the experiment. So it might be once you get into yeah, it. Yeah. I so, feel like yes, but I don't know. We'll yeah, see. Uh, there is the Smashing Pumpkin song and then there's, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so it was a series of experiments that was done where they essentially they put a rat in a cage by itself 
and they hooked the cage up to be electrocuted at random intervals mm-hmm. where you couldn't really tell where it was coming from. And, and so, uh, and there it wasn't like, there wasn't a direct clear cause of this pain that would come. And when a rat was in there by itself experiencing these electric shocks, it would just kind of live with it and didn't really have much of a response. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you put another rat into the cage and they both were experiencing this and they didn't know where it was coming from, they basically fight to the death. Oh, they assumed it was each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And they did this with, with a, a bunch of different mammals. And yeah. it's, it was a, it's the same sort of thing. Okay. And I would posit that politics is set up to do exactly that to us. And, and what I mean by that is I'm not saying that the stuff that's on the cultural level doesn't matter because it still affects people's lives. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, the stuff that's going on under the surface affects us all to a more significant degree than what we realize. And this is what really got me into politics was before I said I never got into it for a few reasons, but one of them was I just didn't feel like what it was about really mattered to me because mm-hmm. I was living my life. I was in survival mode. It, it just, it, it was what it was, right? It's just the system that I live in. I can't change it because my vote doesn't matter. So it just, it is what it is. And so what you said around, like, let's just burn the whole system down. Hmm. That is also an intentional state. There are things that are done that have over the course of generations have gotten to us to the point where they've demoralized us so much that we're apathetic and or want to destroy the system. We can, we can unpack like why I, I feel certain ways about this, but I suspect that it's all leading up to an outcome that they're trying to create. And so there's this quote by Charlie Munger that is, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. Mm. And what we have to understand is they control the incentives structure of the game. Yeah. They control the flow of information of the game. Mm-hmm. And so they can't necessarily force an outcome but they can drastically increase the probability of the outcomes that they want because we've handed over the power of them to control those things, right? And so there's a lot of stuff that goes in under the hood that it happens so slowly. It's like the frog being boiled. Right. We just don't even realize that it's happening. Do I engage in politics? Not openly, because I don't believe that anything that I have to say is ever going to be taken the way that it's intended. I would describe myself as a fiscal moderate, a social moderate. I lean toward the classical liberal side if we were to look at politics on a spectrum. However, I think that my actions show that I probably am significantly more conservative than I think people would expect. As a five, I struggled with politics um, for a long time, and I really was outside of it. But in the last five or six years or so, I've gotten very passionate about it. But from a five perspective, I started a newsletter about how to talk to people in a respectful way and by using the things I learned from doing research on things like that. So I call it Mending Fractured Relationships, and I'm trying to help other people do it and apply it myself. I'm not as good as I wish I could be, but um, I, I feel like I have some tools and that I'm helping other people. 
So I want to pick one thing in particular. Okay. And um, this might not seem obvious on the front, but I want to unpack what is money? What is money? Just generally? Yeah. What is money? Like, why do you go to work to get dollar bills, (laughs) (laughs) y'all? Yeah. um, What is the utility to you of having money? Obtain resources. Obtain resources. probably the base, yeah. So why don't you just work and get paid in an apartment and get paid in groceries instead of getting paid in dollars? Um, the, the first thing that comes to mind based on that information, if in, in the, the comparison in my head is that there's not nearly as much serotonin released in my brain from <laughs> obtaining money and choosing and getting to choose what I want to do with that money versus mm-hmm. we'll give you an apartment. We'll give you food. We'll give you all of the resources you need. If you just work this amount of hours per week, um, it's all like, it's all given to you. Yeah. I mean, it takes the, it, it takes whatever semblance of, so whatever illusion of independent control you have, I guess, um, out of it. Sure. Why do we have a, a currency system versus a bartering system? I don't know. I'd much rather have a bartering system. Would you? I think so. And if you, and if you couldn't buy them, what would you have to do? You have to make them. You could not have yeah. the job that you have. Right. Because you would be spending all of your time mm-hmm. making or growing or producing right. the things you would need to barter with. Yeah. So that means that, you take like the, the thousands of job classifications that we have as a society mm-hmm. and you bring it down to like 30 or 50. Yeah. Right. You only have a handful of options. Right. What the introduction of a currency system does is it allows specialization. One mm-hmm. thing. Right. Yeah. So that then you can, you can do a job that's specialized that doesn't necessarily produce things you can barter with, but it, you get paid in a currency. So that currency, if you think about it, is you, you talk about you use it to buy things, but it's really a claim on future goods and services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So money is a claim on future goods and services. So let's kind of just think about that as a definition of money. Right? Now, the, the, the thing that was a big aha moment for me was when I started to learn how money works and how the banking system works. Have you had a chance to dig into that at all? Because it's fucking crazy. Let's just go into it. <laughs> I mean, a little, but not 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 more than I okay. have the time for. You've clearly had more time. So, to do it. so we, it's it's become an obsession of mine um, yeah. because when I first heard about it, I'm like, "There's no way that this is actually how it works. This mm-hmm. is batshit crazy." So, we live in a country and in Western society, most advanced societies at this point, right? Yeah, uh, we live with a banking system called the fractional reserve banking system. Have you heard mm-hmm. of that? Yeah, no, not, okay. not in that phrase now. Okay, so basically this, so I'm gonna oversimplify it um, okay. just for the, the sake of this illustration, but yeah. it's essentially like banks can only lend out 90% of the deposits that are in the bank, Yeah. right? So let's say, Cody, you get paid $1,000. That mm-hmm. goes into your bank account. The bank then has the ability to come and lend out 900 of that, say to me, mm-hmm. right? What happens when I get lent $900? What's the first thing that happens with that money? It's given to you. Where? In the bank account in that they have. my bank account. Yeah. Right? So that $900 gets put in my bank account. Right. Which means they now can do put take 90% of that and lend that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. On to someone else for $810, right? <laughs> Yeah. 
where, okay, so you see where this is going? Yeah. To the trail, to the point where $1,000 can become $10,000 of debt, mm-hmm. essentially. Where does that other nine ten thousand $10,000 come from? I mean, nowhere. It's like a promise that they'll pay it back, right? It, it is created out of thin air. So think about this for a moment. The bank says this, you now, you, it's basically just putting a credit on your account. Mm-hmm. And... It's in money created out of thin air. Yeah. And then we have to pay that back. But we don't just pay it back that. We pay it back plus interest. Correct. Yeah. So where does the interest come from? From us. Exactly. Yeah. So our whole money system mm-hmm. is built on debt. So going back to money, what, what do you remember our definition of money? It's a claim on future goods and services. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the interest on top of that comes from us. Right. We work to pay off that interest and it goes where? Back into that bank. To the bank. Yeah. Yes. Now, how can a bank create money out of thin air? With words? <laughs> so, so the way that it used to work because it was, we had a fiat, a fiat money system that was tied to a hard asset called gold. Mm-hmm. And we have a central bank called the Fed. Right. Okay. Do you, what do you know about the Fed? That they print money. Okay. Great. That's a good start. Yeah. So essentially, the, the Fed has, supposedly the Fed has a couple of mandates. But at the end of the day, you can, you can boil it all down to the Fed sets the price of money. That doesn't make sense on the surface until you realize the Fed basically backstops all of the banks. Well, that makes sense because if they're printing money, I mean, the more money you print, the less it's worth. So, like, they have right. to decide. So we're, we're getting to that. But, yeah. but before we get to that, the mechanisms, they have a couple of mechanisms that they use to influence the economy. One is they set the, the Fed funds rate. So, they set the base rate okay. of what it costs to borrow money. Hmm. Okay. So, they have their rate. And then the banks, and, and basically, they're, quote, unquote, lending to the banks. Mm-hmm. The banks are then lending to you and they make their profit in the margin between what the interest rate is for the from the Fed and the interest rate that they charge you. And usually there's like 1% to 2% difference in there on average and that's where they make their money. Okay. So essentially, that's how the Fed determines what the price of money is. So let's kind of keep that in mind. And I know this is complicated, but there's, there's a place that I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. So... Money is a claim on on goods and services, mm-hmm. and then debt is a claim on the future goods and services at some point in the future, right? right. So if you start to create money mm-hmm. and you're charging interest, you are placing a bet that the essentially the output of Cody is going to be greater in the future than it is right now. Mm, yeah. Because you've got to pay that back plus interest. Right. Right now, take that and scale it to the whole economy, which means that the future has to be larger than the present. If you take a whole system and set that as the incentive structure, that means that you have to have growth at all costs. Because if you don't have growth, everything falls apart. Right, you have banks closing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So think about in our whole system the implications of that statement. Growth at all costs or the system falls apart. Yeah. What kind of decisions are you going to make? 
you're probably going to like at, at first it's going to be it's it's not going to be that big of a deal because the 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 gap between the current and the future is small mm-hmm. but one great thing from that came out of covid was they all got a good understanding of what exponential growth means mm. and how quickly yeah. that that hockey stick works where it's like all of a sudden you know it's just little growth little growth little growth and if everything doubles you can start with a penny and in an hour you're you know you have hundreds of millions of dollars yeah right if you're doubling it every second mm-hmm. right and and so that we we have a hard time as humans wrapping our heads around what that end state looks like mm-hmm. where things are doubling, you know, every so many years. So I, I give a, just one illustration here. Since 2019, we've created a, a little over $8 trillion in debt. Mm-hmm. And this is just like debt that's on the balance sheet. This is not like the, the IO. So as our, our whole debt level is like reached over 30 now, but, um, you know, just in the, in this time period, right, since 2020, so this is like, what, three and a half years, we have created over $8 trillion in debt as a nation. Yeah. How long do you think it took us to get from the, like, beginning of the the founding of the country to get to $8 trillion total in debt? It, it was a long time. How long do you think? The founding, I mean... When did we hit the $8 trillion mark in total debt? I don't know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. It was It was 30. 2005. Oh yeah, okay. So about twenty, yeah, twenty issues. So so from that's what I, I knew it was soon. Yeah, I knew it was like it took forever yeah, to get to eight trillion, right? Yeah. And now we've we've gone from like and and we're 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 growing at an exponential rate. Mm-hmm. But think about that for a second, right? Think about that claim on the future growth. Right. Yeah, it is absolutely unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so there is a point in which this falls apart. Right, yeah, there's a reckoning coming, for sure. There is a point at which yeah. this absolutely falls apart. Mm-hmm. And it is it's one of those things where, if you're familiar with complex systems, the difference between complicated systems and complex systems is, in complex systems, there are emergent behaviors. So you can't predict what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You can make some educated guesses about some things that might happen. But we have, like, if you look at like the global economy, it's, a comp- it's nested complex systems. Mm-hmm. And when something breaks, it's going to have drastic, drastic implications. And it almost did break in 2008. Right. And we kicked the can down the road. Mm-hmm. To <laughs> at some point in, in the future. Yeah. And probably the nearer future than we're comfortable saying. And, and, and I'm not saying that I know what right. that date is. I yeah. have no idea. I mean, I, I want to preface this. I'm not an economist, right? I, right. Yeah. I, but I, I have spent the last... But you yeah. are an Enneagram five. I am a five, and I've spent the last like <laughs> you stayed at a Holiday Inn <laughs> two years, <laughs> two years, uh, like following a lot of fan, uh, finance guys and macroeconomics and and yeah. all this stuff um, because I couldn't believe how this actually like this the house of cards that we built is enormous. So I want to I want like that's sort of like the backdrop of of all of this, and I want to go back to what you were you know you started to get into a minute ago. Mm. Um, so. Let's say that I, as Josiah, mm-hmm. have a magic money printing machine and I can counterfeit dollar bills, $100 bills. Why is that bad? Well, because, you know, if I want to, if, if you and I are trying to buy the same house yeah, and I want to buy that house, I can just print a bunch of money and I'll bid you. Right. Right. So in that sense, it's very unfair. Sure. What if I gave you another magic money, print, money counterfeiting machine, right? 
And what if everybody had a magic counterfeiting money machine? Uh huh. What would happen then? Well, we'd all just keep making more money for ourselves. And what would we do with it? We'd basically like shoot it into the economy. <laughs> so like if, if we're, let's say we we're all trying to get the same house, what would happen? Yeah. We just constantly outbid each other. Right. With so, no consequence. <laughs> right. Which yeah. means, so what gives things values is scarcity. Mm-hmm. There has to be some level of scarcity to it in order for it to increase in value. Yeah. So what's the difference between me counterfeiting money and the Fed printing money? If, if I counterfeit money, mm-hmm. it benefits me. Yeah. At the cost of everyone around me. Yeah. When the Fed prints money, it benefits them at the cost of all of us. Yeah. That is the only difference. They want to be able to choose who gets the money. Mm-hmm. So if you look at this from, you know, like a, a long view, let's say, let's go back to, you know, the Fed was created in 1913. And at that point, if you look at the inflation over the course of pretty much from the beginning of the country until, you know, the, the early 1900s, the cost of goods pretty much stayed the same. So we would have wars and inflation would spike because of the, you know, the all wars are inflationary, right? But, but they would come back down in like a decade or two mm-hmm. um, to roughly the same place where they were. The Fed was created in 1913. Not that long after that, we have, and, and, I, and, and it wasn't just created in, in the United States. So around that same time, central banks were created in all the Western world, essentially. Yeah. Right. We have World War One, and basically the central banks fund both sides of the war, and all of a sudden we end up in this uh, this place where at the end of the war, you've got Germany, France, and England, and forget who else in that, but they they meet and they say, "Hey, look, you basically destroyed Europe. You got to pay us back reparations and all of this." And their economy had been crushed as a result, and they're like, "We we can't pay you back," and so they start printing money and they print money to the point where they have hyperinflation in Weimar Germany, where basically people are taking wheelbarrows full of cash just to buy groceries. That's mm-hmm. how worthless the currency becomes. All right. That leads to extreme unrest, poverty, radical populism mm-hmm. leads to the rise of Hitler. And we have world war two. Yeah. We really never learn from Germany. That's really <laughs> the, the moral of the story. Right. Anyway, so go on. what happened in World War II was really interesting after yeah. World War II because essentially uh, the United States made out like bandits in that mm-hmm. because we came in and the, I always get access and allies, the allies, right? That's, that's us, right? That's the, sure. Uh, yeah. So, so the allies, um, they pay us a bunch of gold, right? To help them out and send them equipment, military equipment. Yeah. And, and then we get involved and we quote unquote help win the war. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after that, we all kind of get together and we're like, okay, what does, what does the new world look like? We don't want to make the same mistake as the past. Right. How do we move forward? Because France is bankrupt. UK is bankrupt. Everybody has been destroyed in Europe. And basically we have all the gold. And so we meet at bread and woods and we say, hey, uh, why don't we take the U.S. dollar and make it the world reserve currency and we'll hang on to the gold and you can take this currency and use it to rebuild. And at any point, you can exchange that currency for your gold back, like when you're ready, basically. And that's how that worked. Around this time, we banned the ability for U.S. citizens to have gold for like 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then 
around the uh, late 60s, early, uh, yeah, like late 60s going into the 70s, I believe it was Spain started this off. We There started to be some doubt zone of uh, like how it was supposed to work was a dollar was supposed to give you a certain amount of gold, which meant that we had enough gold to support all the dollars. Mm-hmm. There were rumblings that we no longer had, like we had way more dollars out there than we had gold. And so people started to mistrust that. And they're like, hey, uh, we're going to give you your dollars back and we want the gold back now. And basically Nixon and uh, Henry Kissinger come together and they're like, uh, so we're just going to remove the dollar from the gold peg, from the gold standard. And you can no longer turn in dollars for golds. This is just going to be temporary, you know, because we need it. Basically, we've hit the 70s. We have terrible inflation with stagnated growth. So like the way people, um, economists refer to the 70s is like stagnation, uh, stagflation period mm. where you have, you're not growing. You have, you have like low growth or negative growth, um, but you still have high inflation. Right. Um, which, uh, spoiler alert, that's what we're in now. Yeah. And, uh, and so they, they depeg the dollar from the gold, which means that there's no longer a hard asset backing the gold. So what happens at that point? They can print money as much as they want, mm-hmm. which they do. Yep. So they moved over to what's called now, they, instead of uh, pegging the price of the dollar to um, gold, they pegged it to oil. And we have what's called the U.S. petrodollar, essentially, is how that works, which means that we made a deal with the Saudis to only sell oil in dollars, which means everybody has to have dollars to buy oil and everybody needs oil, which means everybody needs dollars. So we can continue to print money and we're not going to, the idea is we're not going to experience hyperinflation because there's now a greater demand for the dollars. Mm, Yeah. And so basically we can just keep printing and that's what's happened. And so if you look at wage growth in the U S real wage growth has been flat since the 1971, basically. Nominally, like, you know, it looks like wages have grown, mm-hmm. but when you compare that to how much the cost of goods has grown, uh, it's flat. And we all feel that. We all feel that, right. but not all of us. It's true. Going back, why is it, why, what's the difference between me counterfeiting money and the Fed printing money? Them versus us versus. They get to choose yeah. who benefits from it. Well, yeah. When I say we, I mean me and you, <laughs> not the top 1%. Right. So, yeah. so, so then what happens is you have this phenomenon where the people who are closest to the money printers mm-hmm. benefit. And you have all of this extra money mm-hmm. flowing into places like BlackRock and Vanguard and these giant corporations in Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Right. What, what that does, though, is that drastically inflates the things that they care about, which are homes, land, yachts, you know, all these hard assets that they can buy. Right. And so you, and that's where they put all of their wealth. Right. And right. so when you, when you look at, and, and certain equities and things like that. Sure. So yeah, there's this really interesting uh, thing that you, if you look at the M2 money supply, which is basically like, like the best measure we have for the amount of currency that's out there hmm. and you put it over the stock market as a whole, it's like a 90%, 97% correlation. So that means that aside from like the disruptive tech stocks, the reason why the stock market has grown is because of money printing. It's fake, right? Yeah. You do the same thing on the housing market, same level of correlation. So houses haven't gone up in price. Right. The value of our currency has gone down. Right. 
Now, the thing that I want people to understand from this, where did it go? My dollar's worth, worth less than it was before. Mm-hmm. It's actually worth about, it's like down 90-something percent from when it, you know, when it was when the Fed was created. Where did all of that go? Into somebody's pocket. Exactly. Inflation is really currency debasement. And I know, and I'm I, like, again, I'm oversimplifying things. Sure. Um, but as a whole, there are always going to be sort of exceptions and, and fluctuations where their supply and demand will create inflations in different areas. But on the broader arc of everything, right, inflation is currency debasement. But what that debasement is doing is a wealth transfer. It's transferring wealth from us to the top 0.1%. Mm-hmm. And you can look at that in the charts where yep. basically everybody else stays flat. And the top 0.1% just keep going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And they look at us as, you know, we're the common people and they deserve this. Yeah. Right. And, and we, and we basically are here to serve them. And, and I, I, the reason why I'm getting into all of this is that if you don't understand the way that money works, you don't understand the objectives of what they're trying to do and the way that they've structured the incentives in this, in the, in, in the game to get the outcomes that they want. And the outcomes that they want is to steal all of our wealth from us. We're the ones who are producing the wealth. We're the ones doing the work. We're mm-hmm. putting in the labor. Yeah. And we progressively have less and less and less. It's impossible to, at this point especially, save for retirement. There's mm-hmm. no way to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and then you have to like, and then so they did this, they've done lots of tricks to sort of mask this over the years. First, they, they got, um, they increased the, uh, you know, after World War, War II, we had a, a surge of women into the workforce, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I'm all for women empowerment. Like, like great. Yeah. But we have not had an honest conversation about what that has done to society and what that's done to women. Mm-hmm. And then really what that did is it masked, like, the, 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 the effects of this currency debasement. Where, like, back in the day, you could go work at a factory and actually be able to support a family on a single income. And now we, we can, we can't support a family on, on two incomes. It's like, and, and, and like, unless you have a high paying tech job, you're not going to probably buy a house if you're, you know, in our generation or below. Right. Well, and as somebody who's come from now two tech jobs, (laughs) that's not even secure at all. (laughs) Right. And, and so it's, it's just progressively gotten more and more, but you have to remember it's an exponential growth thing. Yeah. So we're entering this hockey stick phase where it's like going to get way worse, way faster than our What do you mean by hockey stick? So what, if you look if you look at an exponential chart, it looks like a hockey stick. We're like uh, at the bot like okay. a hockey stick where like the majority of yeah. it is a very Horizontal. slow incline and yeah. then at the end all of a sudden it goes poop yeah. and straight okay. up. I got yeah. you. And that's where we're at. Hmm. And and so we're going to see like this decade is going to look nothing like the decades before. We're going mm-hmm. to see massive disruption. Massive. I, 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 can't even, I can't even begin to predict all of the implications because, like I said, it's nested complex systems with emergent behaviors. There's also the, the, the kind of uh, parallel stories of um, the, the story of the... I can't remember exactly. I'm not, I'm going to botch the details. So let's just focus on the, the generalization here. Um, the, uh, back in the, I want to say sixties, 
when they created the first computer and they ran through it. Um, when will humanity run out of resources? Do mm-hmm. you know this story? Yes, I have. I have opinions. Okay, <laughs> but go ahead. Well, you know, it's it's like they they were like, okay, so it gives a certain date, and it's mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, well, based on all the data that we have at this current time, this is this is the decline of resources and what we and how we're going to use them, and so that was like the experiment that happened at the time. They moved it to the side, and then in like the '90s, they revisit it and they find that it's like crazy still accurate with even the data that we have right now and then sometime what 2014 2015 a professor at one of the ivy league schools that i can't remember um did it as just like a fun experiment with her students and was like let's just run the same data through the same process through the same like computer um uh, probably simulation mm-hmm. um and see where we are and it came up with the same data which is yep. about 10 years from now and actually probably less than that now and um yeah go ahead well (laughs) makes you wonder why they created agenda 2030 at the world economic forum which is what (laughs) uh where basically they have determined what they want the future to look like and spoiler alert uh it basically creates slaves out of all of us and puts them in complete control but they don't frame it that way well okay but then how does ai play into that well, that is a that's a whole can of worms that I don't think we have. We have. Uh, we've already. Yeah, we've already taken up too much time for this. I, I have thoughts on that as well. Um, but yeah, we'll have to we'll have to save that for another conversation. But I want to get back to um, the reason why I brought up money is that when you when you realize that over the last you know hundred years almost or more, yeah, hundred years or more, like they've basically there's been this gradual increasing wealth transfer from the lower middle class up to the top 0.1%. And we've had this concentration of wealth, which means you've had this concentration of power, which means at that level, you are dictating so many things in society because the way the politics work is that it doesn't matter what we vote for. And this is like looking at the data, what matters is who is lobbying the most for things. Right. And the more money you have, the more your policies are going to have a chance of, of being enacted, mm-hmm. right? And so we have these massive corporations, these ma- like the banks, the Wall Street, Silicon Valley, all these places, yeah. Yeah, pharmaceutical, you're ch- and you're choosing as, a, as an investment firm, like which projects are getting funded. And, and so you are literally shaping society more and more. Right, yeah, politicians are shells. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're just housing they're, they, for whatever. Inf- they yeah. are the dogs at the table begging for scraps. Yeah. And the ones who are the most obedient are the ones who get the more scraps. Mm. And you can look at that across. How, like these politicians are paid, you know, 100 something thousand dollars a year and they go into politics and they come out a couple decades later and they're worth like 20 million dollars right that didn't yeah that didn't happen from their salary (laughs) yeah right right. it didn't happen from speaking engagements it happened from things like insider trading and it happened from you know like funding under the hood like under the table right and and this it's just this whole clusterfuck and the system is designed to screw us and to benefit them and continually get more and more power. But the thing about it though, is the, what I'm, what I'm kind of starting to piece together is it's not just like one singular force. It's a Mm -hmm. lot more like game of Thrones. Yeah. Where there are warring, warring factions, right? Um, we're, and we're the peasants that, you know, that like get stomped on essentially as Mm -hmm. people rise up to, to, to power at different points. 
And that's how they view us, at least. Right. Well, I mean, George R. R. Martin, uh, what, uh, what's her name from Handmaid's Tale? All of them, they all say when they write these books, right? Like, all of this has happened in history. It continues to happen in history. We're not making this shit up. Right. <laughs> right. So, of course, yeah, right. I mean, it's reflective of, of true true history and humanity. Yeah. So there's this... this <laughs> there's this uh, this idea of the uniparty, and uh, I, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Where the 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 difference between Democrat and uh, and Republican is all is all surface level. It's an illusion. Sure. Yeah. And there's a meme that I love that is uh, <laughs> when uh, Biden came into office. This got really popular. And let me see if I can find it here. Uh, all right. So it's this it's this meme, and it's showing people in the Middle East. Uh, with a drone above it. And it says, they say the next ones will be sent by a woman. And then the other person says, really makes you feel like you're part of history, <laughs> right? As the bombs are <laughs> dropping on them. Because when you look at, you know, the, the, the warring between the Republicans and Democrats, there are a few things that they always agree on. Mm-hmm. Warmongering, yep. corporate welfare, and anything that increases the control of the state over the rest of us. Yeah. Right? Always which means everything else is just a distraction. It's to make us think that like, oh, this is my team. They're on my side. No, that's bullshit. No one's on your side, not in government. Like no. it's complete bullshit. And, and that's, the, that's the part where I'm at. It's like, there is a solution and, uh, and which we'll get into, but you have to first accept that your team is not on your side. You're, you're not on their team, yeah. right? You're actually not on a team. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> that's the, that's you're the, the kid and kickball that was left at the wall. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and so there, I actually don't feel like a, the majority of the listeners are going to disagree with this. <laughs> I actually feel like as Enneagram fives, we've probably all come to some form of this conclusion. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we're just like laying it out in a, in a way that is, uh, that makes sense for everybody or is like, I, yeah, I, I know I, I went down a rabbit trail with the money thing, but I think that it's so, it's so important to understand, yeah, to understand like how it actually works. When I first like looked into it, I'm like that, how could this, how could this be? Yeah. Like this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Is this fantasy? Like how does this work? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so money, money is essentially worthless. The only, the only thing that holds the system together is our belief that the system works, works like that's really, and that's what we're starting to see with these bank runs. And another thing I want to get across is like all the stuff that I talked about, it's not like this sort of just like happened, you know, randomly, this was policy decision. They Mm -hmm. put in policies and they knew we are screwing everyone and we're benefiting the select group. Right. And that was an intentional decision over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. They're always going to make that decision. Yeah. Anything that puts them in power gives them more control. They're going to choose that over anything that benefits us. Right. As a five, I do engage somewhat in politics, but mostly to, I guess, uh, discuss it with others. For me, I think it's important to have an understanding of both sides and where people are. Some things I agree with, some things I do not but I don't necessarily tell people vocally if I disagree with them right away. I want to hear what their opinion is and where they stand. And then I'll tell my side, and usually if it's a certain person, I may disagree with them. But I don't don't do much other than voting as far as the political scene. I already know this world is messed up and there's not much we can do about it. 
but I can vote, and I do. But I try to be as balanced as I can with the issues and what's going on. But I do feel that I have a, a strong sense of the political side. So it just depends on what's going on with the politics and the political scene. I, I want us, so there's a, there's a couple of, of directions I want to go with this in this conversation, but I want to sort of like just check in, level set, where are you at in, in or how are you feeling about the conversation so far? Well, so it kind of makes sense in, to some degree. I can't remember who it was that, um, that said this. I saw, I remember I saw a video that really uh, kind of changed the way that I thought about money at the time. Um, I can't remember who it was, but he's somebody who's very, very rich. I, you know, when I, when I saw him, I was like, I recognize him in his glasses and he's bald, like all the other rich people. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he, uh, he was talking, he was almost like a Ted talk style thing where mm-hmm. he was explaining like how he talks about money, what he thinks about money. And he, he, he says to the audience when talking about, he was like, when my, my kids, you know, he's talking about like how he teaches his kids about money. And it was a really interesting conversation. Um, and the New York Times actually did a whole podcast about how the wealthy handle money. And it, it lines up exactly with what this guy says, where he was basically like, I don't have a debit card. My kids will never have a debit card. My grandchildren ne- will never have a debit card because banks can't be trusted. It's not real. And he was just like, all of my wealth, all of my money, everything goes on a credit card. And everything is based on a credit card. And I do everything with credit cards because I'm not going to trust a bank with money. All of my money is in actual things. And I'm not, you know, it's all investments and like land and whatever property. It's like, it's all these things. And like, I just exchange that whenever I need it. Everything goes on credit cards. I have an insane amount of debt because (laughs) I mean, he has this whole explanation where like, you know, he, he goes through this whole process about how he can pay it back and blah, blah, blah. But like, ultimately what he says is, nothing money doesn't matter like nothing matters because i have this amount of worth based on this paper that says that i have this amount of worth or at his level he has this amount of worth because of the hard assets that he owns right right yeah Yeah, for sure and so and and like and like and that's that's something where you know this maybe is probably one of the least popular uh podcast episodes the new york times released where they like went into this hardcore is like how people like jeff bezos <laughs> spend money mm. and it's like they don't they don't spend money they don't spend their own money yeah yeah they never spend their own money they go to banks and borrow money yep. and spend that money yep and, and they do it at a rate lower than the rest of us will ever, ever exactly. have access to exactly yep. yeah and they have and they don't pay taxes so it's like they have they have the loophole. They they always will be working outside of the system, whereas we're we're enslaved to this system that's against us. So, you ask me how I feel. I like I we're on the same page. Yes. Yeah. For I, sure. I I've been coming to this well to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe I mean you might be more and in, in like big picture like stepping out from the the details, but like in terms of like, am I? picking up what you're putting down yeah. of course yeah definitely like we're on that same page like everything is against us and we're all fucked like yeah i think hopefully me and the listeners are together well, on this yeah we're not we're not fucked and and okay we're we, i would love to hear that yeah side of it. so um a lot of people are fucked yeah but i think there if you can there there are things that you can do to help mitigate the fuckedness of 
<laughs> off of this whole thing because it's it's shit's going to get real in yeah. the next in the next five to ten years. Like, sure. yeah, it, it's going to get real. Yeah, um, kind of what you were getting at with the like the resources thing. Well, let's just um, as an example. So we, uh, if you think about going back to what we said, like you know, debt is a future claim on on goods and resources. Those goods and resources require energy to produce. Yeah. Okay. So if you look at the GDP of all, you know, of all the nations, you can, it's, it's like directly correlated with the amount of oil they have access to. Mm -hmm. Right. So that means that if we're going to, you know, 10 years from now have basically we're, we're claiming double the, the amount of claims that we have right now. Right. So think about the output, right? We, yeah. if like 10 years from now we have to have double, it's actually more like eight years, double or less the double, like what we're saying now. Um, that means we have to have double the, the economic output, which means that we have to have double the energy output. Yeah. We will not have that. No. And the reason for that is we've essentially hit what's kind of referred to as peak oil. We hit it around 2019, 2020 yep. where we've reached this place where, you know, and, and this is part of like the story too, was when our parents were growing up, they grew up in like basically the best time in history where oil was really cheap. Um, and, and it was, uh, like the economy was booming because, you know, you could, you could spend a dollar getting a, a barrel of oil out of the ground and it, you know, it could make $50 from it. Like so that's, that was kind of like the ratio. Right. And that's also an exponential, uh, decline. Whereas you can look at the chart now and it's more like, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's less than 10 to one. It's more like, I think like four or five, three, four, five to one mm-hmm. and, and steadily declining. And the reason for that is that when you first drill, uh, you've, you, it's really easy, but the, the, the more that gets depleted, the harder that it gets, the deeper you have to drill, which means the more expensive it is. You get to a point where you're spending a dollar of oil to get a dollar of oil. Mm-hmm. At that point, it's a wash, right? And then that just declines from there. Where you're, It takes more money, it takes more energy to get the oil out of the ground than the oil can produce energy. There's this weird game on my phone that <laughs> is exactly this mentality. Like uh-huh. it, you drill oil, <laughs> it's uh-huh. the whole game. And the deeper you go, the more expensive it gets. And you're constantly having to like upgrade the little pipes and all the different things. And that, and there's a point where like, unless you find a huge pocket where you don't have to do anything for a while, most of the time, 90% of the time you're going bankrupt because you're trying to, and that's the whole point of the game is it's like, now I'm wondering if that's the point of the game. Maybe it is. (laughs) And, and I've learned like the oil, the whole oil thing is way more complex than I think most people understand. Um, because there's, there's different types of oil and there's like the, there's like different countries have different refinery processes and it's just, it's, it's way more complex. It's not that simple. Um, and so there's a narrative out there that, uh, oh, like green energy will save us. Mm. And if you look at the chart of energy consumption, uh, the renewable quote unquote renewable energies of like windmills and solar. And it's just a tiny, tiny percentage. So I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, yeah. So the, the renewables are, there's no way that we can make up for that amount before it starts to become untenable. Well, yeah, um, we've already passed that point. Like everybody's talking about like the, the point of like global warming. And I'm like, and we, we probably already passed it a long time and ago. And I'm not even talking about that. Like, honestly, well, yeah. 
I'm not concerned about that because what's happening is we've, we've reached this like sort of we're over the hill and going back down the other side. I'm not saying we're running out of oil in tomorrow, but it's going to be progressively more expensive and there's going to be less oil, but we're expecting as a global economy to have like, you know, exponentially more growth. Right. Yeah. And we, that's going to be projected an in- increase. Right. Like, yeah. And so sure. we are making yeah. as the United States, it's almost feels like it's intentional mm. that we are making decisions where we are selling off all our strategic oil preserves. We're not drilling anymore. We are not investing in nuclear. We're not. And, and the renewables is just, it's just not there. Uh, what we would need. Like we have to have like a multi-pronged approach to be able to survive the next decade without a bunch of people starving to death. And that's just the reality of it. And, and it's crazy that no one's having an honest conversation of all about all this. It's just masked in all this crazy politics. And I think that that's probably intentional. And so you've got then like the BRICS nations forming with like China and India and Russia, and they're, they're forming their own currency. And they, you know, they represent like 60% more, more of the global population. And we're, we're entering. Hang on. This, hang on. What yeah. do you mean by BRICS nations? Was BRICS it is a like brick and mortar. No, like? um, BRICS is an acronym. It's like Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah. South Africa. And then you have a bunch of um, other countries that have applied to that because what they're saying is like, you know, the basically they're trying to take down U.S. hegemony, where there's no longer one uh, global power. They're trying to come together to become, you know, like a like a, a dual power kind of thing, global power, right? right, right as right. as we're watching the you know the decline of the U.S. empire, essentially, yeah, the decline of the the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. I'm not saying that's something that's going to happen overnight, but it, it's definitely already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they're, you know, it, it usually is something that, it, that takes like decades to, to happen. Um, but they're, like I said, we live in a different time where things happen faster these days. It used to be like in the last, like 2008, uh, bank runs took weeks or months. Yeah. Uh, now we live in a digital age where you can transfer your money instantly and bank runs happen in like overnight. Yeah. And, and so like they're there, I could, I could imagine a few scenarios that are very realistic that could we're, we're entering this world that is going to look very, very different than the world that we grew up in. Yeah. Um, some of it might be good. A lot of it's going to be really bad. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there are th- real things that are happening below the surface that no one wants to have an honest conversation about, or they want to completely ignore. They want to keep us distracted from that are going to have a bigger impact on society as a whole than the stuff we're arguing about where like we are entering this world where uh, you know, it's going to get harder and harder to make ends meet progressively a lot faster. And so let's get into like the, some of the solutions. Right. And so part of the strategy is to keep us demoralized, to keep us apathetic, to keep us feeling like there's no hope. Sure. Um, Because as long as they can do that, we're never going to take action and we're never going to do anything that will buck the system. So there's a, there's a first part of this that I think that we've got to level set on um, and sort of reorient our brains or our identities, whatever we want to call it, right? So I've been... Ego. Ego's a, ego's a big part of it too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. Um, I've been writing this essay in my head. <laughs> so, okay. We'll see how this goes. It's called The Progressive Case for Conservatism. Okay. Okay. So 
Um, I want to separate this from like Republicans, Democrats, because all that's bullshit. Also, it was flipped not that long ago. Yes. That's another piece of it that really pisses me off is that I've been called right wing, but the, like the, 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 my views not that long ago were very left leaning. Like the Mm -hmm. left used to be against censorship. The left used to be against like government overreach and big corporations. And now it's the opposite. And, and, and actually going back to like trusted sources, I've, I've found just through experience and, and testing things is like a lot of the people that are probably the most credible are the ones who are clearly left lefties who are being called right wing hmm. right now okay. um, because they, they are like the true liberals of like in the, like the classical liberal sense. There's actually, there's something I wanted to read. I'm glad you brought this up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Um, I want to read this, and I want to see if you can guess who wrote it. It's been floating around, ba- and it started uh, floating around based off of um, a very recent event that happened. Can you can you give me like some kind of? It is a manif- It's part of a manifesto. Okay, but when you say like guess who wrote it, like give me some kind of parameters. Uh, well, it, it might be obvious. I don't know how much okay. you know about this person. We'll just see. Um, right. Okay, ready? Yeah. Some left it. Uh, it was okay. It was written. <laughs> it was written in uh in the early to mid nineties. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Some leftists may seem to oppose technology, but they will oppose it only so long as they are outsiders and the technological system is controlled by non leftists. If leftism ever becomes dominant in society, which it has. Um, if leftism has ever become dominant in society so that the technological system becomes a tool in the hands of the leftists, they will enthusiastically use it and promote its growth. In doing this, they will be repeating a pattern that leftism has shown again and again in the past. When the Bolsheviks uh, in Russia were outsiders, they vigorously opposed censorship and the secret police. They advocated self-determination for ethnic minorities and so forth. But as soon as they came into power themselves, they imposed a tighter censorship and created more ruthless secret police than any that existed under the SARS. And they oppressed ethnic minorities at least as much as the the SARS had done. In the United States, a couple of decades ago, when leftists were a minority in our universities, leftist professors were vigorous proponents of academic freedom. But today, in those of our universities where leftists have become dominant, they have shown themselves ready to take away from everyone else's academic freedom. This is political correctness. The same will happen with leftists and technology. They will use it to oppress everyone else if they ever get it under their own control. I'm supposed to just blindly guess? <laughs> I just wonder if you had any, any guesses. If you've seen this at all. Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man, that would be wild if Bill Clinton wrote that. I, uh, I mean, so, uh, Ted Kaczynski. Do you know who that is? Ted Kaczynski, yeah. The Unabomber. Yeah. Yeah. Who just died. Exactly. That's yeah. why this has surfaced again. Yeah, okay. And uh, I don't know, so I don't want to get too much in the conspiracy theory uh, <laughs> conversation yet, but he was very, uh, uh, I would say there's a credible evidence that he was part of the MK Ultra program that the CIA run ran. Are you familiar with that? No. Oh, you should look it up because the MK Ultra program basically was their experiments in brainwashing. The other thing I wanted to say, and this is another thing that pisses me off about the energy situation, uh-huh. is we had in the 60s at Oak Ridge, which is just up the road from us, yeah, a working thorium-based nuclear reactor. 
What's thorium? Thorium is an alternative to uh, uranium or plutonium. Uh, I, I'm not going to pretend I know how this works. Yeah. But um, essentially, the way that it worked was it it was they could produce they could create a reactor that was impossible to melt down using thorium, and produce it a uh, very minimal waste, and uh, there's three times as much uh, thorium on Earth than there is plutonium or uranium, whichever one of those. It's know. uranium, <laughs> uranium, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and so they had it working, right? And the government in the early 70s decided to shut down the research because they couldn't use the nuclear waste from it to create weapons. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So we could have had all this time. And and that, that, ener- that could have uh, powered the entire energy of the country for the next thousand years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm telling you, it is a policy decision where we're at. A set of policy decisions. This is not by accident. People have made these decisions over and over again to fuck us over for their own control. Right? So, the good news is they're losing. Who is? Okay. So, I want us to say, like, going back to the whole Uniparty thing, what I've, and the whole uh, Game of Thrones thing. Yeah. What I've realized is. Are the Lannisters losing? Yeah. <laughs> well, what I've realized is, like, <laughs> if you want to look, it, it's, it's an illusion, right? So, really, at this point, it's it's a transnational group that's outside of governments that's really running the world. Yeah. And and there probably are, are warring factions within that, but they they kind of go into two two camps. Mm-hmm. And uh and so you if you want to stay in the system, you basically choose between um like what flavor of totalitarianism do you want? Hmm. Globalist totalitarianism or nationalist totalitarianism? Yeah. Like those are your choices. Yeah. Right. And I say, fuck that to both of those things. Right. And so the first thing that we have to do is we have to realize that we are, are stronger together than we are apart. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. So going back to my essay on the progressive case for conservatism. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, This is going to be a a bitch for you to edit. (laughs) Yeah, I know. This is like uh, the movie planet of the apes that the, the first remake where they put the sticks together and they're like together, strong, separately, <laughs> yes. would break easily. Like that's that's what I in my mind. That's what I picture. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is the essay I've been writing in my head. All right. And as you know, I like sailing analogies because yeah, I I do. love to sail. Yeah. Or I haven't at done one it. time. Yeah, I haven't done it in a long time. <laughs> not since I lived in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it's a core memory of yours. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Okay. So let's to understand this concept. Um, we have to understand a little bit about how sailing works. So say looking at a compass, mm-hmm. just give up on the time. Okay. We're, we're, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. It's, it's whatever, I know, you know, I we're know. getting into late hours. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, okay. So thinking about like, you know, a compass, you've got the sailboat in the middle. Yeah. Um, uh, the wind is blowing from North to South. Okay. So the wind is coming from the North going to the South. Mm-hmm. What happens when you face the boat to the North? the wind is coming north to south mm-hmm. uh, you're going to go like nowhere, nowhere. Or backwards yeah yeah exactly you can't sail into the wind correct right okay so um what would your guess be for the direction you could sail where you could go the fastest south okay why because the wind is at your back okay so let's say the wind is going 10 miles an hour mm-hmm. what's the fastest you can sail south this feels like like, like a bad math word problem <laughs> 
I'm going we, somewhere. With we this. we've all uh, we've all uh, we've come to the conclusion that I have dyscalculia, right? All like, right, right. Uh, all right. Uh, so if if ten miles an hour, uh huh, going south. Yeah. What's the fastest you can sail going south? Ten ten miles an hour. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because that's the speed, speed of, of the, the wind. wind. Right. Yeah. So for the way that a sail works is it basically works like a kind of like a an airplane wing that's stood up on its side, right? So right. it's like an airfoil. So you've got yeah. right. So you, the it's air goes wind uh, catcher. <laughs> The air goes across it uh, on one side slower than on the other side, which creates, uh, on an airplane wing that creates lift, this creates for, like thrust. Friction, yeah. Yeah, thrust, thrust yeah, sure, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so um, because of that, if, if the wind is blowing and you reach the same speed as the wind, there's no thrust mm-hmm. for you to, can, to continue to, to push forward. Yeah. Okay, so aside from, from sailing into the, into the, like, the north, Mm-hmm. Sailing south is the slowest direction you can go. Okay. Any guess why? No. <laughs> <laughs> so the the fastest direction you can go is uh, I'll, northeast. I'll, uh, kind of, yeah. Or so northwest. Yeah. So either way. So uh, I'll leave out the technical terms, but basically like perpendicular ish to the wind, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're, let's say you're going east. Mm-hmm. Your your sails will be oriented north south while you're going east, which means that the wind will continually go north to south at ten miles an hour, but it's creating thrust, it's propelling you east. Oh. That's how it works, right? So you can go faster than the speed of the wind if you go like perpendicular to the wind, all right? Because and and the wind is hitting the 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 sail. So if you watch if you watch um, sailboats, what that thing does? What's that called? So it's uh, the rudder. What you no, like you, you can turn. Oh, the, the main the mainsail. Yeah. So the mainsail will swing um, you back can swing on the boom. It and that's, on that's the, boom, the whole right, point, right? right? Yeah. Well, okay. so you so to get somewhere, like say if you wanted to go north, you would what's called tack. You would go like northeast and then tack to northwest and then tack to northeast to kind of like mm, go back and forth to, okay. to get to where you need to go. Right. Right. So if you it's watch kind of a zigzag, yeah. If you watch the sailboat, like if you're sailing east and think about it, the wind's hitting the sail and it's pushing on the sail. Yeah. So, so it's going to push the boat over, right? So you, you often will watch, like if you're watching people sail, the boat is tipping. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So this is the point that I want to, I want to get across. Okay. It, you, you need that to, to go the fastest. You need to be going in that direction where the, the wind is hitting your side and kind of like sending you at an angle. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I started to think about um, the way that I used to think about progressive versus conservative. Now I want to, I want to say like, I am oriented more towards being progressive mm-hmm. in, in like, in like the truest sense of the, of the word, not a political party, but like being progressive, meaning like I'm thinking about how do we continue to move forward or improve things? How do we continue to like, what's out there? What's out there beyond the horizon? I'm always yeah. thinking about that. I, I'm oriented in that way. Mm-hmm. And I viewed conservatism as an anchor dragging us down it's like they're they're set in their ways they don't they don't want us to progress they don't want change they're you know they're averse to change i disagree with that but okay i'm saying that's how i used to view yeah used to view conservatism Mm -hmm. um now i view it as well let me ask you this why when the wind is hitting the sail why doesn't the boat not tip over i don't know so on, uh, on a standard kind of 
what's called a keel boat, which is what people typically think of when they think of like a regular like sailboat. Yeah. You have a, um, a, what's essentially like a fin, a big fin at the bottom of the boat with right. what's called a ballast at the bottom. That's a counterweight. Mm-hmm. So that means that barring something like a rogue wave, it's actually physically impossible for the boat to capsize. Because if you think about it as the boat tips, that's less force from the wind on the sail because it's at an angle. It's no longer hitting it like full mm. thrust. And so the, the ballast so is a ballast made. point. Yeah. So there's a, there's yeah. a point where like it cannot physically tip over because the ballast will always hold it like in, in that position. Right. So it, it can like the, it will never let it go past the point where it tips over. And once it gets to this angle, the wind can no longer, it doesn't have the same amount of force. So it can never actually tip the boat over no matter how strong the wind hits the boat. There's a, there's a brewery. <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay. That's the that's name Ballast Point. Oh. It's on the West Coast, I believe. And uh I never understood the name and now I do. <laughs> that's the only reason I know the phrase <laughs> ballast point. <laughs> so that's what it is. Okay, it's the angle. Yeah. Got it. All right. So, so that's the point of the ballast where it can't lose its friction. I, I guess. Got it. yeah. yeah. So so now I think about in this analogy, yeah. Um progressivism is the the main sale. Right, it's the thing that makes us go forward. Right, mm-hmm. it it reacts to the wind, and it and and it's an eye on the horizon, and we're moving through the water. Uh, conservatism is the is the ballast that keeps us from tipping over. So there are what's called like dinghies, um, where like you, where these are the small boats where you can essentially you are the ballast. So as the boat starts to tip, you shift your weight to make sure that it doesn't capsize. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so you can do that and you can get good at that. Um, but you don't want to go very far in that because you don't want to capsize. Like there's a, there's a great risk. Like, especially as you're learning, you're going to capsize, you're going to end up in the water. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. just one of those things. Like you, you have to get really, really good at it. And even then, like there are going to be instances where like, you know, maybe a big gust of wind kind of catches you off guard. You're going to end up in the water. Or waves, right. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're on like a dinghy and you're like going around the, you know, the bay, like it's not that big of a deal. Uh, if the boat is society, <laughs> capsizing is a really bad fucking thing. Yeah. And so now I think of, of conservatism as as the thing that's keeping us from from capsizing. And so in if we want to go far together, we have to to figure out that balance. Yeah. And we have to work together and understand that each each sort of orientation it has its benefits has its pros and cons and has its, has its views. And, and honestly, like when you really get down to it, we should all have both inside of us. And, and some of us might be leaning more towards one direction, but, but the, 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 the benefit of having like conservatives in your life, if you're a progressive is they, they help you counterbalance. So you don't capsize. And so I'm, I'm specifically talking about like, for example, so I know I'm mixing like concepts here, okay. but there's this like, uh, this Chinese concept of Wu Wei. Wu Wei? Yeah. Wu Wei. Okay. And it's basically like, um, creating an outcome with the minimal amount of effort. So you kind of figure out where the, the flow is and you figure out like, what are just the little nudges you need to like go with the flow, but direct it enough to get to your, your outcome. Efficiency. Um, yeah, sort of in a way it, but, but it requires you to find the patterns and subtly shift them. Okay. Right. So there is a way that I'm just, for lack of a better word, I'm gonna call them the global elites. I feel like, um, 
they have this. They have you this. You could also call them the villains. Sure, the villains. <laughs> um, they have some techniques that kind of align with that, right? Yeah. Uh, where they're looking for essentially grassroots movements or grassroots things, and they will uh, basically hijack them, all right? And 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 sort of uh, first they capture them, um, and then they corrupt them. And there was a study. I'll uh, I'll put the the link in the show notes. Um, but they're just unpacking the differences between, I, I don't know if they use these terms exactly, but like conservatives versus progressives and uh, on a lot of stuff, like they're like pretty aligned on a lot of things, which is what kind of what we were talking about. But the thing that they were most different on is, you know, humans, we're a tribal species. Like we have a, like, that's just how we've evolved. Right. Yeah. And the, the biggest difference this is partially my interpretation of the study, but like the biggest difference between those two, um, those two ends of the spectrum are how they view who their tribe is. Right. Mm. So conservatives view them as a very small circle at the, at that one end versus progressives view as like all humanity, nature, uh, animals, like, you know, just really pushing those boundaries. And like, I, I'm like more oriented towards that larger sort of progressive picture. And and I get that, mm-hmm. but is the universe contracting or expanding? It's expanding. <laughs> right. This is okay. the whole idea of like the big bang or whatever. Yeah, okay, So it's expanding. Right. Got so it. yeah, it Got started it. from one point and it's like expanding out. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and if you kind of take this idea of we live in a fractal universe, so there are patterns that, that go across. Like, so change happens from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the, if you want to progress, the, the change actually has to start in the center. That has to start at the smallest circle. It has to start at the individual. And then that kind of moves out to the, the large, like the, 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 you know, the household and then the neighborhood and then the, the city and then that expands out right yeah it happens from like the a inside cult. out yeah like a cult yeah like one leader small circle bigger circle <laughs> um sure. trying to circle around back sure, the not? beginning of the episode uh, I don't know. <laughs> and and so what happens so so the the to me the downside of and where progressivism is vulnerable is that they want the change to happen but that requires essentially like um, helping the 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 inner circle evolve to expand, mm-hmm. right? But that only that can only happen at the individual level, right? Right, and you cannot force it, or people just dig in, like. But but what happens though? Yeah, is and this is where I was coming with the the this concept of Wu Wei, um, and and where we. I, I think there's a lot to learn from living at that edge of progressivism of like, what could a potential future look like? Um, and, and, and incorporating that it needs to be incorporated at that individual level. Right. But instead what happens is backwards is, um, and this is where it kind of, where I was trying to get with nationalist versus globalist totalitarianism, where the globalist totalitarianism tries to force that from the outside in. Right. And so that's where you start getting clampdowns of, uh, uh, enforcing things like censorship and enforcing like more, more and more restrictive things that restrict our freedoms, restrict our liberties, restrict my, my ability to make individual choices for my life. 
and and they have lots of techniques that they use to make it seem like it's for our benefit, mm. um, and 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 it's just like slowly moving over time, over generations, more and more, moving to this point where they're trying to force the change that they want into the inner circle to try to redirect the path of humanity essentially is what is what and so if we and 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 they're able to do that because we're not in balance we're we're not in harmony between the 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 ballast and the mainsail we're and so essentially they're trying to capsize the boat so that they can take it over that's the way that i view this who is they which side are we talking about the the globalist elites we'll call them the villains right yeah the ones outside of each point yeah, and and when and so like the the nationalist versus globalist, it's just like the nationalist is just a slightly smaller circle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, that's really all it is. Sure, and and so the um the the way we overcome this is we realize that we don't need them. We don't have to listen to them. We we start to build our own alternative systems, and the first place and this may. <laughs> This uh this may be uh seem surprising, but like the first place is we start with the money system, and we are and the the thing that I'm most optimistic about is we have a mechanism for that, and it's called Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you thought that this is where I was going with this. I did. Okay. Yeah. Um. And and so I don't <laughs> want this to be like a lecture on Bitcoin, but and and obviously i'm i'm not going to give financial advice to anyone but the way that it works is it's 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 decentralized and that's that's the difference it is the hardest asset on the planet hasn't it been like particularly um volatile though well yeah generally because it's a small market but right. but think about it it's volatile because we're measuring it against the United, the US dollar okay so it's like it's like how volatile is the price of your house you know, the mm-hmm. price of your, your house specifically is, is not that volatile because the market is so large. Mm-hmm. The market for Bitcoin is still, you know, relatively small compared to the other markets. So it takes, it takes uh, less money to move it more. But that's, that is, it, at, over time, it becomes less and less volatile. But what I'm saying is you can start moving your money out of their system into a system that you can fully own. No one can take your keys away from you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you need to research this and learn how it works and, and make sure that you've got you know, all your bases covered. But that is an example of, I mean, and there are other people who advocate like you can do it with precious metals and things because those are hard assets too. And you can do it, you know, if you can't, if you have enough money right now to buy property or buy, you know, houses, things like that, anything that like gets you out of their fiat money system, that means that when they, the more they start to clamp down and the, the less that you will be subject to that. That is a start. That is a starting point. Mm. Right. Um, and then, uh, that, so that's just one, that's sort of the, the financial capital side of things, but we've got to start building relationships with people who are ideologically different from us. We've got to look at our neighborhood. We've got to start building community. Uh, we've got to start, uh, planting gardens. We've got to start like learning how to be self-sufficient outside of their system um, we've got to start learning skills that we can use to like help build society, you know, out like, even if it's just a hobby at first, like things that are, are where we're creating actual physical things 
that we can use and slowly start to remove ourselves. Like, honestly, I will probably never vote again Hmm. because to me, that just, that, that me voting is me basically giving credence to their system and I don't believe in it anymore. Right. Um, And so when we get, when we get to like, you know, there's the, this is sort of like anarchist, but it's, it's not an anarchist in like we, like the system's going to collapse. Yeah. Right. We don't have to burn it down. It's going to collapse. Yeah. It'll, but it'll do that for us. But yeah. we can contribute to relieving the pain of that collapse for as many people as possible if we if we start building an alternate system now. And and that's what I'm getting at is like mm-hmm. there are things that we can do to to start like removing ourselves piece by piece and and helping other people do the same thing to where it it doesn't have to hurt us as much. And the more people do that, the the, the sort of more people we can help relieve that pain from. I knew there was always a reason why I loved like post-apocalyptic shows. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> Survival books, all of those things. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. I think that, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm with you on that. I think that, and I think that probably we're all together on that. I don't know very many Enneagram fives who don't love the idea of survival books and, and post-apocalyptic shows and stuff for that, maybe that same reason. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I kind of feel that way too. I've been talking along for a long time now about how we're like kind of all at the whims of, you know, greater power destruction is like all we're just, we're headed, we're on a train that is headed towards a bridge where there is actually no bridge, <laughs> you know? And so, and we're just like all on this train. So how do we become the conductor or get off the train? And so I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard conversation to have. I, I, I remember I talked to my brother years ago about, um, having, uh, some type of coordinates, uh, tattooed on our bodies. So we knew where to meet <laughs> yeah. when, when society collapsed, um, and, and he kind of laughed and I was not kidding, but he, but he, you know, he's like, how would we do that? You know? Yeah. Um, here's the thing though. Like n- no one's going to survive on their own. No, you know? no and one will. We've got to start building community now with yeah. the people around us. Like we, we have to do that. And, and, and I've, I've started doing that. Like I, yeah. I, I found like an online resilience community and met up with people like in that are in Chattanooga um, some people moved to Chattanooga to kind of be part of that group too. And interesting. Um, and I'm going to like ideologically, like we definitely have some differences, mm-hmm. uh, some extreme differences. And and some of it is like, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to figure out where your red lines are. Um, but I value those, these people and I appreciate them. And I know that like, if I were to call them up and say, Hey, look, um, I need some help planting my garden. Do you want to come over and help me? Like they would do that. Mm-hmm. or anything like that. And, and we we're all at least oriented around like, Hey, we know that the next decade or two is going to be real rough and we need to have, we need, we need to do something to have each other's backs. Um, and so even if we don't align on some things, like we can align on, you know, we can at least align on, we want the the society to be better than it has been. Um, and, and we don't necessarily know what that looks like. We may have different ideas, but we can, we're willing to work together to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and I think it's pretty, pretty clear that (laughs) society that we know right now is very large and society might become very small very Mm -hmm. quickly. So it's, it's important to, uh, to, uh, value community because those communities will become very small 
Potentially. I mean, they could be very easily. I mean, all, everything that we, everything that we know and we exist in is incredibly fragile. Yeah. Way more fragile than anyone realizes. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. fragile. And it could all be over. We could wake up tomorrow to a different world. We don't know. Yeah. Like what if the internet shut down? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that sounds crazy. There, there are, uh, because I'm a technologist and I understand how things are built, I can, I can imagine at least three or four scenarios where it, it, you hit the right points and large swaths of the internet will go down yeah. that, that we have access to in the States. And that could be, you know, the same for different areas of the world. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not that unreasonable, uh, to like as, as a probability. No. Right. And, and think about how many people could not function without that. Yeah, you know, it's going back to my the conversations I have with my parents where they it, it's it's so fun. It's so fun to have conversations with with people of different generations and how they understand and how we understand where the world is and and what we do or don't understand. I think is probably more um, accurate as, in, in terms of, of of coming to grips with 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 where we are as a, as a community, and I think that you know they're like, well, you know, I, I want my I want to you know, if you buried your money in the ground, okay, but what if, if society collapses, your money is worthless, like everything yeah. is worthless, and that's I've had that conversation with my parents, and they're like, you know, they talk about like, well, you want your money to be in like you want to have cash and you want to have all these things, and they want to and you know want to have all these things. I was like, none of it matters, none of it matters. Well, yeah, I mean, there are scenarios where like. Um, you know, if the internet went down, cash could be handy in the short term because there's, yeah. there's still like this understanding of like certain things are worth a certain amount Societally, of dollars. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Everybody will resort back yeah. to what we know. But I was like in the, lo in the long term though, like if, if tomorrow I woke up and I looked at my phone and everything was crashed and nothing and like I saw people running amok on the streets, my first thought is grab everything that I can that I can survive on right now and head straight for the, the biggest section of wilderness I can find, <laughs> right? Like get away from all the people. Well, you definitely want to get out of the cities. Yeah. Uh, that's a all, big part. Of get this. out of the city. If you live in a big city, move. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which, which we don't live in a big city, but we, we live in a, a small I, city. I live directly in the middle of the city. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so like, you know, everybody's going to be thinking about like looting in, in, in everything. And I'm just yeah. like, and my parents are like, you know, you want to get all these things. And I'm like, why does it matter? If, if everything collapsed tomorrow, nothing matters except survival. And the only thing that we can control is what we can grow and what we can eat and what mm -hmm. we can, how do we wake up tomorrow? That's the only thing that matters. So like all the money you have, all the things you have, you could burn it to the ground because it doesn't matter. Just leave and go straight for the wilderness, get away from people and find, at least find the people that you can trust and create your own community. Everything becomes incredibly uh, ma micro versus macro. Yeah. And I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, start doing that now. Right. Versus yeah. like, cause if you, if you're waiting to do that, when society collapsed, like you're fucked. Yeah. You're fucked. Yeah. yeah. You're going to be solo. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I don't like, I don't have everything where I want it to be. No. Um, and I'm at least like the reason why I started a garden last year, cause I wanted to at least learn the basic concepts and cause going from, uh, one to 10 is a, a lot easier than going from zero to one. Right. And, and so like that first year, it's like, I, there's so much that I don't know. And mm. I learned a ton. And I honestly, most of my garden died. I got very little <laughs> produce from that garden. Right. Yeah. But I started again this year and already I have more than what I did in like, you know, the entire season last year, I've gotten mm. more out of my garden because I, I've learned a ton. And, right. and so, you know, just having those basic skills 
um, then you can even most people probably aren't going to be in a place where they can uh, grow all of their food on their own. But if you've got those skills, you can contribute to a community garden where, you know, we can, you can like sort of share that and like with like a shared land space, like there are different things that you can do um, to start investing like in the community of the people around you and figure that stuff out now and start building those relationships now. And like, I don't want to be all doomsday, but like even let's say, I, I don't think this is one of those things probably where, we wake up tomorrow and society has collapsed. It's one of those things where it's like, it's, it comes in waves, the but, frog it, in the but it takes a long time. Yeah. Um, and there will be some, you know, some weeks where decades happen and some decades where nothing happens. Like that's a quote. Right. But it's like, uh, I, I will say though, it, it seems very, very apparent that things are accelerating. Yeah. And I, I, I can, I will put my reputation on like the banking crisis is not over. Uh, we have not, even seen the beginning of like, we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, the, the re- quote unquote recession. Um, what's going to happen as a result of the decisions that the fed has made over the last few years. Um, like there is, and, and, and again, this is all intentional policy decisions. Well, yeah. And I would say it's, it's, I would venture to say that it's probably more likely that nothing, it won't, it won't, we won't face a situation in which everything collapses. We'll face a situation in which somebody figures out how to grasp control and we all suffer. And so we'll be fleeing a system rather than we will be like, so surviving a collapse society. There's, there's, are you, do you know what a CBDC is? So the other, the other downside of like being more on the progressive end is that we can, it's really easy for us to lose track of reality, like in the day to day where we're like, we can, we can, we if our vision is out in the future, like we can sort of stop being grounded. And, mm-hmm. and so the things that we come up with might sound good in theory, but in actual like pragmatic application does not work. And that's where like the, the, on the conservative end, like that's where you're living in the day to day. And that's where stuff gets applied. And that's what I'm trying to get at with the starting from the inside out. Like it's, we, you have to have that vision. You have that, the direction of where you want to go, but it doesn't matter if it doesn't work right now in, in the now, like we've got to figure out like, what is the, what is a step that gets us in that direction at from, from zero to one, like where we want to go now to the next step. And, and then, and then, and then it's like a dance where we're figuring that out together. It's like, okay, we've got here now, this is kind of working. Okay. We, we think we want to go here. Does that work? Oh, not quite. Let's maybe pivot to this, right? Like this is, this is what I'm trying to get at. Like, this is how we work together and we need to do this at a societal level. We need to do this at a community level. And honestly, we need to do it at an individual level. But it's kind of a weird like duality that you're talking about, right? Like we have to exist in the, in the system that we already are currently existing in where, uh, it's on fire and we're, it's burning down. And we're also thinking like we're existing now and in the future, right? Like it's like a duality of like, a, it's two different existence existences, I yeah. guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm not really thinking as much. I'm specifically about like the current system versus like the, the, I agree, but it affects yeah. us. Is yeah. What I'm saying yeah. like, we have to think that way because we have to think, we have to think about a, a version of ourselves that exists outside of what we are currently experiencing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's a duality in that way. Yeah. And, and I would, I would call it a polarity. Yeah. We can get into the difference between those two things, but the, <laughs> okay. uh, at another time. Yeah. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make is that we, we get pitted against each other. The people who are more progressive versus more conservative. And we're, we're told that 
each side is our enemy. And, and each side just keeps doubling down to the point where like we're essentially, we've formed two separate societies, mm. but we all live in the same place. Yeah. And, and that is untenable. It's just not right. going to work. And, <laughs> and we're all voting in the same system. Oh and God, like, it's so, yeah, <laughs> it's, it, like, <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah. And, and so we, we basically need to give the middle finger to, to that system and say, look, I'm going to, you know, bridge that gap. I'm going to look inside and see like, what are the things that I can find common ground on? You know, how can I check my own assumptions, my own ego, my own identity and start inside first and then, and then, and then work to like extend an arm to people and like actually genuinely listen without judging. Like, so like how do we hit the reset button essentially? Because like we're, we're but it has so to start with me first individually. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. How do we like me, how do I hit the reset button in such yep. a way that I can hear other people without being emotionally triggered by yep. the the standards and the and the the markers that have been set right. by the system. How do we not be rats in the cage? Yeah. One question to, that we can ask ourselves is how as fives can we uniquely contribute to this sort of rebuilding of society? Spoiler, this is actually why we created the podcast. <laughs> And the community, like, we're pulling all of us together. We as a society, we will be the supreme leaders of the future world. Uh, but, but kind of. I mean, we, we could do it. Uh, the people that I've talked to in our community, we could do it. Yeah. We, could, we could all make it happen. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. How do we do it? I don't know. You know, I think that one thing is an advantage that we, we can have is we have this non-attachment. Mm. Right. And I think that's yeah. probably why we're so far on the edge of like being okay with apocalyptic scenarios because we're not super attached to the current <laughs> scenario. Well, yeah. And we kind of live in, in that world where we can easily detach from anything and, and live on the fringe of, of, of all things. Right. And we look from the outside in, I think is definitely one of our strengths. Yes. And, and maybe being a bit more objective, uh, in that. But I think the challenge for us is, is realizing that we can't stay on the fringe. We have, we need each other. Yeah, We've yeah. got to step up and we've got to not, uh, sequester ourselves. Well, yeah. And recognizing our, uh, recognizing that our strengths for ourselves individually is also c can be strengths for community. Yeah. It can be for other people and, and for ourselves. But yeah, we need each other. We have to we have to learn how to get along. I guess. Yeah. 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 And we have to we honestly we have to figure out how to do community. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that we've been talking about over and over again in different contexts is like how like if we're not doing church, which yeah. which I think is a poor substitute for community in a lot of ways, but it at least like had some elements of that. Yeah. Right. How do we how do we form that community locally? with the people in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think honestly, one, one, another advantage that we have is we're naturally inquisitive and curious. And I think that if we can get past our, our own egos and the judgments that we have and just start asking questions of the people of, around us and, and figuring out like where, where they see themselves, do they see what's coming? Do they feel like the need to do things like plant a garden? Do they feel the need to like build community and maybe just start, you know, asking those questions and and finding people who at least are on that same page damn we're getting real right now you just called out a lot of listeners right now i can feel it okay uh, <laughs> you know i think that 
I think that you're right. I think that um, it's 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 a it's a hard thing to how many of us exist. You know, I I think about the comments on our um, and on our other podcast for the community, right? Like, how many comments do I see where we talk about so often about how we, you know, it you read between the lines and you think about how often we individually talk about how we don't need other people and how Mm. we're totally fine in our own space. We're totally fine existing in our own space. I think about that on a regular basis. I love existing in my own space. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we're, we're currently sitting in the middle of my own space. Right. And, and I've, I've, I've curated it in such a way that where when I close that door, like I'm happy and I love that, but I also exist with another human being in this space. And that's been a, uh, you know, it's a challenge. It is yeah. a challenge all the time. And I, I think at this point, like, you know, uh, Madison and I have been together for, God, we, according to Facebook memories, we, we've been together and at least known each other for about six or seven years now. And uh-huh. that's the longest relationship I've ever had in my entire life. And uh, yeah, we currently face situations in which it's it's hard and we have to have hard conversations about how whether, you know, whether I'm an Enneagram 5, whether I'm on the spectrum, various different things like I have to constantly check myself on whether or not I want to and consciously acknowledge and decide that I want that I'm going to um, interact with other people and rely on other people for my own benefit as well as others and I think that's something that's it, it'll, it'll be our detriment as much as it is our benefit, right? Like we have a lot to offer to a community, but we also could easily be our own demise in that way. Yeah. And I want to, I want to take what you said and expound on that because like thinking about just that dynamic between the, like the physical person in your direct vicinity mm-hmm. and expanding that <clears throat> to thinking about how many people it took to produce all of the things in this room that we're sitting in right now. <laughs> Think about I, that. I'm reading. I'm reading a book right now. Uh-huh. Um, it, I think. I is it. I think it's called the Creative Way. Do you know? Uh, I think I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's by Rick Rubin. I think it's called the Creative Way. I just picked it up um, as a recommendation of one of my friends, and I've been losing myself in this book. And <laughs> and one of the things that he talks about, um, Rick Rubin, who's a very famous producer and and has created many great works of art and um and helped do that. And he. He talks about in his life and he's just like, you know, everyone is a creator. Like you don't have to be an artist to be a creator. And he was like, every single time you sit in any space, anywhere, someone has created everything that you're around and existed in. Right. Like, and I was, I think I thought about that in terms of like, if I was sitting in a room talking to some, and and, and, which might happen soon, apparently talking to a bunch of college students in a university about songwriting is a, is a potential, uh, future scenario in my, in my, in my story. And, um, and I was thinking about that the other day and I was just like, you know, how do, how do I talk to a group, a room of people about creating songs? Like what is songwriting? What is songwriting? How is, what is creating? You're, you're around everything The the table that we're, we're sitting at, someone created it. This, the clothes that are on our backs, someone created everything, everything that we are around is someone created. And so like, we live in a world that is created by the humanity that has come before us. And we're constantly working in a, in a, in a world that we're trying to create and move forward and progress forward and into a future that is yet to be realized. And I think that that's something that is, is so beautiful and so in, intense. And we, we exist in that, in that suspension of, of reality in, in so many ways. And I think that that's, 
it's it's beautiful but it's also terrifying as an enneagram <laughs> five i think you know it's like because like it's a lot of pressure and and i think that as fives we we um we feel that tension yeah. a lot of the time you know like we we often see what is lacking and what could be yeah and and kind of building on that uh it reminds me of um it's like a video or book or something i want to say it was so, it was called something like uh radical gratitude or something along those lines mm, yeah. where a guy wanted to look into what it actually takes for him to get his cup of coffee in the morning mm. and goes yeah. and traces it back all the way to the source of like the grower of the beans, the roasters, the people mm. who transport and went and physically talked to all of these people, the people who like, you know, flew the plane, like the drove the truck to, you know, the, the barista who, you know, created, and, and it was hundreds of people just to get his cup of coffee. Yeah. And like all the way down to like the designer who designed the logo on the cup. Right. And, and so that's what I was getting at with like, think about all of the like thousands and thousands and thousands of people who just produce the stuff in this room. We take that for granted. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I I, being part of a software company, like I know like our, our company right now is about a hundred people but that's not counting all the people who used to work there in the past over the years, just to build this one application that then, you know, thousands and thousands of people use to, to interact with and provide value to thousands and thousands of people. It's just this like crazy network effect that we just can't see because we're in there, our little bubbles. But right. if we, and, and so we, it's really easy for us as fives to stay in the story of like, we don't need anyone else until we start to think about all of that mm-hmm. and realize like every single book on that, sh- on your shelf had an author, had an editor, multiple editors, had a designer, had people working at the printing press, had people working to like distribute the book, had people working at Amazon. Like that's just for the books on your shelf. Everything that we know <laughs> is because of other people who knew <laughs> yeah, it first. Exactly. And 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 did the work, right? Yeah. I, I think about that every time I, I drink a glass of wine. Mm. You know, it's like I and I personally have had the the privilege of knowing winemakers and people who have been in in actual vineyards and and picked grapes and what it takes the science behind what it takes to think about one single vine and how you're going to grow that vine and then turn it into a vineyard and so yeah it's it's i think about that every time i drink a a glass of wine A, a glass of wine tells a story and everything that we do the mic that we're talking into right now tells a story everything that we do tells a story and and we as fives are constantly telling stories and, 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 and expressing those stories and learning about those stories and finding ways to uh, invent new stories. That's, yeah. That's, and when we're, it. we're tempted to go down that nihilistic path of, of, we just want to watch the whole thing burn. Think about everything that we're giving up. Think about everything that we're destroying all of that beauty. Yeah. You know, if what we're really talking about is like watching society burn, that's what we're really talking about. And, and, that's not a world that like, if we're real, like really sit down and honest with ourselves, like that's not a world that any of us want to live in. No. Like, and there's so much beauty to humanity. Like we've built this together. And I know that we refer to, um, America as sort of this like failed experiment. And I can see that in some ways, but there's also a lot of success in this experiment. And what can we learn from this that we can take and move forward with? It's also, it's also about like who says that the experiment is over. Yeah, that that and that's something I was thinking about when I said that phrase originally in the beginning of this conversation, like it's a failed experiment until it's you only you can't fail. Right. Like there's that there's that also that conversation about like the the, no matter how many times you try, 
you know, if you keep trying, you can't fail, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can only succeed. And so, um, you know, when do we call it a fail experiment or when do we keep trying until it becomes something that is viable? And, 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 and yeah, and as fives, we often, uh, are kind of backed into the corner of uh, by ourselves and others as, uh, identifying a lot with the villain. <laughs> I, I identify <laughs> with the villain, you know, I think yeah. about, you know, dark Knight, like the Joker. Yeah. Why some, some people just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, for sure. I think that that's, uh, that's definitely me a lot of the time, but, um, yeah, I think that as we grow and as we learn more about ourselves and we try to push forward, we have to find that, that part of us that's deep within that, that is kind of always there and maybe even calling out to us that's saying like, what if there's more, what if, what if we are capable of more and what if we have more to offer to society and to our own communities and to ourselves than what we are giving ourselves credit for. And maybe that's, maybe that's, the 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 conversation we've been having all along you know we, we can talk about politics all along but like politics is nothing and, yeah. and and what we're really talking about is ourselves and our stories and i think that's something that i had kind of hinted at before but like you know politics is just the 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 frame that we put you know i i read recently that um you know a, a painting is just a painting until you frame it and put it on a wall and then it's called art hmm. And, you know, what if, what if that's a story is just a story until you like frame it in the, the ugly, the, the ugly frame and put it on an ugly wall and call it politics, you know? And so you, you just, you frame it in whatever context you want and you put it in whatever room you want, but it's still, it's still stories that, and it's still real people and it's still real existence. I, I remember walking down the street today and thinking about all the people that were driving by me and walking by me and they're all individual stories. They're all individual mm -hmm. people who've had their own feelings and their entire years worth of of knowledge and we're all just existing in this system yeah. that is dictating how valuable we are. Yeah. And exactly. That, that's kind of, that's, that's it. So how valuable are we? Yeah. And so I guess to kind of land this plane, um, if there's one thing to take away from all of this, it's that we as fives have a part to play and at our best, we are visionaries. Yeah. And, and inventors we, and inventors and we we have the capacity to help build a new world and so this is a, a call to arms it's mm -hmm. a call to not do what we are uh inclined to do most of the time which is disengage and instead lean in and engage and say i want to be part of, of building something rather than destroying something and let's let's fucking do it yeah let's be the foundation let's do it yeah all right <laughs> Until next time. Until next time. Hope you're still listening after this. <laughs>